Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grilling JR. I can't believe this day's finally here. We've talked about this for a long time. But we're finally here, and we're here with the man himself, good old JR. What's going on, Jim? How are you? I'm good, Connie. I'm having my nice little $8 cup of coffee here in Las Vegas, uh, and I'm loving life. Well, we are excited to be here, and uh, we put up a, a bit of a, a reader poll, if you will. Hey, what would you like for us to talk about? And you guys uh, covered us up with suggestions. <laughs> and the one that won in a runaway, Jim, is you leaving WCW for the WWF. Are you surprised at that one? A little bit, but... That story really has not been told, at least in my words, in this form ever. So what the folks are going to hear today is my personal experiences and feelings of it. And I don't think I've really ever told this before. I tell snippets. There's a, some little stuff about it in my first Slobber Knocker book. Right. Uh, but I think uh, I think that the folks are going to be in for a treat today because uh, I read through our, our notes and it's just the memories that came back are amazing. That was a tough time in my life. That was a... That was a challenging time. Uh, not that I hadn't had other challenging times in my professional life, but that was probably one of the more uh, darker periods for me. Well, we're going to get into it. I guess uh, we should briefly touch on the beginning. You came to the NWA in 87 uh, after they bought the uh, UWF, after Crockett bought out the UWF. And then you pretty much quickly became the lead announcer with Tony Schiavone. And I think. One of the first times you guys worked together was that first Clash of the Champions. I think Tony was doing play-by-play, and you were doing color for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that was an experiment done by the booker, Dusty Rhodes, because both Tony and I were play-by-play guys. We were the lead guys. And what that means, that we're the lead guys in our in our ego. We might have been that, too. You have to have a lead person to get you on, in the out of the break, in the next break, pitch to the VTRs, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we both did the same job. I felt like because Tony had had more time on TBS than me, it'd be a lot easier for me just to be his color analyst. Right. And that's what we did. So uh, it was an experiment that Dusty did. Uh, I thought it worked well. I loved working with Tony in that show. 
it was a big deal for us corporately. So uh, uh, that was a positive memory of those days. Well, we'll have lots of time to talk about the uh, the sale uh, to Jim Crockett and, of course, that first clash of the champions. But today we're talking about the jump from WCW to the WWF. And we can't really tell that story without talking about sort of the end of Bill Watts' run in WCW. Um, let's fast forward to February of 1993. Uh, lots of moving parts here. Melcher would report the expected major bloodletting at WCW took place in a meeting on February 2nd, resulting in a significant changing in the corporate hierarchy, including the loss of power for both Bill Watts and more particularly Jim Ross. Bill Shaw and Bob Dew, who were put in charge of the company nearly one year ago from the now retired Jack Petrick, have taken a more of a hands-on approach in recent weeks rather than leaving much of the decision-making to Watts. So what's going on in this meeting on February 2nd? When do you realize there's about to be a shakeup? Well, I wasn't aware of that meeting. I was not scheduled to be in it, nor was I, that I recall. Uh, that was a higher level thing than my pay grade. You know, Bill was a very, uh, Cowboy was a very, you know, give him the devil his due. He was a brilliant guy. When he was on, he was really on. He popped territories in Florida and Georgia he made a lot of money in the mid south, a little, you know, a little territory in the in the hills in the southern part of the world, as you know. But when he was not on, he was really rough to deal with. He was challenging. It was his way or the highway. The problem Bill had in that corporate environment is that if you work in any kind of corporate environment, you have to have the ability to compromise. Right. And his and the cowboys' ability to compromise and to see another way that might be better than his. Uh, was not too frequent. So he he didn't make a lot of friends quick. His Some people had to get used to his abrasive personality. He's just a big, loud, you know, 6'3", 300-pound guy who was an alpha male. He had been this way all his life. Uh, but you had to get used to it if you could. Uh, the other thing is he came in with the express instructions to cut costs. Right. I guess we should mention there, WCW had yet to turn a profit. Right. They're still deep in the red. So when they bring Bill in, one of the first things that he had to do that didn't win him a lot of favors in the locker room is he had to cut money for everybody. Yeah, uh, all all the way around. Uh, he was in. He was the hatchet man on the budgets, salaries, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, for for uh, WCW period in that regard. And when you do that, you got to lay off some people, or you want to renegotiate contracts. Uh, then all of a sudden. Uh, you're making more enemies and friends. And Cowboy did that. And I think sometimes he loved being the heel. Sure. He loved being the heel. So uh, he he didn't have – he did some good things in the beginning. uh, But really this whole thing wasn't really about what happened in the ring. Right. It was all about his attitude and his demeanor. In the office. In the office dealing with other people. Right. And there's lots of famous stories there, and we'll get into them, but – I do want to ask, before we get further into Meltzer's report, do you believe that just based on your relationship with Jim, that maybe hurts you politically? You mean with Bill? Yeah, my apologies. Yeah, I think so many people oh, sort yeah. of see you as, JR's Bill's little buddy, or yeah, whatever oh, yeah. the case may be. You're the sidekick. Protégé. Uh, there you go. Me, yeah. He was my mentor. He got me in the business. He, you know, I was his protégé. But... Conrad, that ship had sailed a long time ago. Sure. People were reaching for something at that point in time. And I often wondered, you know, where that uh, became so prevalent within the hierarchy there 
why it became J.R.S. Bill's uh, 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 protege, and he will always stand in that shadow. That was never my. Uh, that was never. I was there a long time before Bill came. Right. And uh, I had not. And I've been in the wrestling business when Watts got there. I, I started in '74. So hell, man, I I I've been around, and so I thought I had done enough to stand on my own merit, Conrad. That's what I'm saying. I'm not denying the fact that Cowboy wasn't my mentor. He, he was. But what do you do about that? Like saying, you got an old coach that was kind of a hard ass. Right. Does that make you him? Not really. It just makes you that you came out of that coaching tree and you understand that personality. So it was it was a screwed up thing there. And much more of the protege was made out. Hey, look, I used to argue with him all the time. Sure. And debate points. You can't do this. You can't do that. And so he ever, and I, I didn't know how to deal with him sometimes in that regard. It was like he used to have talent dealing with Vince. You better goddamn sure walk into his office respectfully and willing to converse. And the other side of the coin ain't going to get you nowhere. Right. Confrontation over conversation with McMahon, bad piece of business. Cowboy, same thing. You got to let him go, get it, blow his steam, and then say, okay, here's another way of looking at it. Well, you look at it my way. Well, yeah, because now he's blown up. Sure. And he's got to take a breath. And so he would listen for a second. But he was challenging to, to do business with. But sometimes all we talk about with Watts is the, you know, the Hank Aaron deal and the, and his theories on uh, uh, race and things of that nature. I don't know anybody in the country that agreed with that. Anybody. But that was Bill. And he felt compelled, Conrad, to express himself on these sorts of items. And that always wasn't that prudent. So when, when he's doing some of those interviews or he's cutting guys' money, you know, the, I guess you're confirming that the, the rumor that maybe some guys sort of painted you in his corner all the time, that did hurt you politically, you think? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not making excuses because leaving WCW and going to WWE was the smartest business move sure. I ever made. Yeah. I mean, I, I got there ahead of the uh, uh, company going public. I, got, I was in front of the line for all the stocks and the grants. You know, in a matter of months, I, my future was solidified with all the stocks and the grants I got. Uh, I wish I had more of it now. It was straight sure. about, about 100 bucks a hit. Sure. I mean, you might be on an island doing this right here. We wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it was it was a guilt by association. Wouldn't stand up in court, but sure as hell stood up in the court of public opinion in the corporate world. Right. Well, let's, let's keep going with Meltzer's report here. He says that they divided the company into essentially three categories. A pay-per-view division headed by Sharon Sadello, who's become a bit of an internet legend in the last <laughs> 10 years. A television div- uh, division headed by a yet unnamed individual who's expected to be named this week. And a wrestling product division headed by Watts. Sadello and the television division head, whose title will be executive producer of WCW, will have the final say-so on all matters relating to their divisions, including the matches that air on TV and pay-per-view. Since in reality, television is the most important facet of a wrestling company, the new executive producer may wind up as the most powerful front office employee. Uh, Lots of people are going to be applying for this job, according to Meltzer. He's saying that it'll either be Keith Mitchell, David Crockett, Tony Schiavone, Eric Bischoff, or someone not currently working in the company at present. Now, of course, we know that's going to shake out, and it's going to become Eric Bischoff. Um, when do you find out that the company is going to be divvied up into three sections, and are you considering throwing your hat in the ring for that new executive producer title? Well, the uh, the first of all, 
uh, I believe to be successful in any business, you have to have product knowledge. The reason that your company is so successful in the mortgage business is because you understand that world. Right. And you can help anybody with a mortgage because you know all the ins and the outs, the legalities and all the things you can and can't do. Uh, Sharon Sedello had very little, if any, product knowledge. And, and this genre, it's imperative that you have product knowledge if you're going to be in a decision-making proposition or you're going to be uh, involved in, uh, you know, uh, creative or anything along those lines. I felt that was a bad hire. Uh, and uh, to further proof of her inadequacies and, and at times perceived lack of common sense, she had a romantic relationship with Oli. Which is not that big of a secret anymore. I mean, was it common knowledge back then as well? wasn't common knowledge, but, uh, you know, the old telephone, telegraph, telewrestler. Sure. Uh, and I think Oli was kind of uh, looked at as kind of a notch on his gun. She was an attractive lady, good shape, nice, very attractive, was intelligent, and way above his pay scale. But somehow or another, they, uh, she apparently played down her own level and got romantically involved with Oli, which is challenging to think about in the first place. That's another visual you want to recreate, kids. I'm sorry. But Sharon didn't have a lot of product knowledge. I wasn't really t- totally aware of the – I mean, here's the thing. Look at this whole deal. They're going to divide up into three divisions. Right. Are you shitting me? Yeah. How do you do that? Right. You have divisions and you have division heads, but you still got to have one person – that is the is the uh, your conduit. You can't have that many cooks in the kitchen. Uh, I mean, example one of Sharon Sedol's projects was the there was a, I think maybe there was a Bash at the Beach uh, promo once we did that had a shark in it or some and a little person and an exploding boat and yeah uh, you know really it's silly. Well, it's a, it's a it would not even get a passing grade in a sophomore drama class. No way. I'm talking about high school sophomore. Not even college. So that, that whole principle of three categories uh, was, a, was a failed system to start with. I was very happy uh, when I got my – I was happy there all along because I enjoyed doing what I did. And I love living in Atlanta. I like working for Turner. Uh, I felt a part of that company because they're going through so many changes and buyouts and um, different uh, looks and feels. I felt like I was a part of that scenario. I'm sure Tony probably feels the same way. We were, he was there longer than me, for goodness sakes. But I had pride in what I was doing, and I enjoy, and like I said, I enjoyed living there. Uh, but boy, it was a, it was a, it got to be too many cooks in the kitchen, and you had guys like Bill Shaw and others, Bob Dew, making uh, 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 making decisions on a product that they neither liked, or they were educated of. That is a recipe for failure, no matter who is going to be in charge. Hence, as it went along, and it kept going along, they died a natural goddamn death because they never had a great infrastructure. I know that, you know, the corporate structure has been talked about a lot with WWE. I assume, you know, with Leroy and Bill, there weren't these divisions. It's them, and that's it, right? right? Yeah. Well, you know, the old saying in wrestling, you talk to the horse's head, or the horse's ass. Uh, the, there were a lot of a lot of heads there. I never knew. I never did not know if I want a straight answer on something that Mister McGurk or Cowboy would give me that answer in the territory days. Right. 
that was their business. That was their life. Uh, but you know, it's, it was just same thing with the, when I, the biggest change when I went to work for Vince was there was one boss. Right. And whether you liked him or you didn't like him, you liked his decision or you did not, it didn't matter. There was one final, final, and that's all you needed to know. This the old promo will go with the Baron von Raschke. That's all you need to know. Well, what our listeners need to know is Meltzer would report that you took the biggest fall of all. He would write, Jim Ross, whose official title had been vice president in charge of television, took the biggest fall of anyone. Ross will be removed as a personality from all TBS shows effective March 1st and will no longer be a part of the announcing team on clashes or pay-per-views with his final major assessment or assignment rather being on the February 21st Super Brawl 3 show from Asheville and the March 7th pay-per-view date, which will be the January 4th Tokyo Dome card. And uh, he notes that you've been the lead announcer on every clash since the series began. And this is a uh, tremendous shakeup. And he would even write, most sources seem to believe that Watts and Ross took tremendous heat from management because of criticism that all the television shows continue to have a similar look. The decision to replace Ross as a lead announcer and, in fact, eliminate him from all TBS broadcasts appears to be related to his falling star in the front office uh, when the two different demotions should have probably been judged on each individual's merit rather than collectively. I suppose those who look at wrestling like a show, uh, like the 6 p.m. news, may knock Ross because of his accent or because he doesn't look like Eric Bischoff, but that would be missing the point that the stars of a wrestling show are supposed to be the performers. So, JR's uh, being defended pretty big here in the Observer. He's mentioning that you've won the announcer of the year by a wide margin, and you did a great job, but you find yourself with a falling star in the yeah. office. No, no star fell all the way to my toes. Uh, <laughs> so, who, who delivers that news to you? That, hey, Jim, we're going in a different direction, and you're not on TV anymore. Bob, uh, Bill Shaw. How'd that go? Did he call you to his office, yeah. call you on the phone? No, he called me to his office. At least he had the fucking common decency to ask, ask him to come to his office instead of, you know, fex, FedEx me something or sure. or texting me or whatever the kids do nowadays. So, uh, well, here's the thing about that report. I never heard until I read this information or read then that one of the big reasons that, that uh, I was in trouble was because all the shows looked alike. That doesn't even make sense. Right. It really doesn't. I never did. I don't even, Conrad, I can barely write cursive, much less do a graphic machine or, or all that stuff. Uh, and you know, from you and I working a short time we had together, I don't have a lot of, uh, irons in the fire on our creative. Right. I'll tell you, I like it. Sure. But I'm not creating it. That's not my forte. So I don't play in a game I can't win or not good at, to be honest with you. And I, so I never had anything, you know, we had good TV people. Uh, Keith Mitchell, who's now going to be doing AEW. Is as good a pro wrestling uh, producer or television guy as there is as there is in a damn business. He was there in place, right? So he would he had a lot more to do with the look of the shows, but that also had. And I'm not blaming him. I never thought the look of the shows was that bad. No, it wasn't. So that was to me that's a cop out that the the look of the shows got me in trouble. That's actually not good reporting, or it's not accurate. Put that way. This is a political move. Sure. This was a political. How can I? How can a station, as I told Bill Shaw this, we were pretty close face-to-face on that one, too. How can a station that built their goddamn reputation on Andy Griffith reruns, John Wayne movies, and bad Atlanta Braves baseball, and wrestling, 
think that I would be too Southern. You're Aaron NASCAR. You're at SEC football. Andy Griffith. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Andy Griffith reruns her own, you know, every four seven. Yeah. And now, and all of a sudden, I'm singled out as and the, as a wrestling guy as being too southern. Really, I, I thought that was weak too. So my point is, and it might have been justified the the, the politics of it, but it was a political issue. It had nothing to do with the look of the show. I don't think it had anything to do with my southern accent. That's always the go-to. Sure, I have had promoters use that uh, more or less for years. Well, you know, he's now, now they can add age. Well, you know, he's older. He can't, you know, he's not, it's not his deal or whatever. He's passing by. You know, he's Southern. <laughs> he's Southern. So uh, it's like saying, and you know, he's a uh, pedophile. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, you know, really, it's just sure. like, it's the same old shit. It just doesn't make any sense. So uh, I thought it was a political thing all along. Uh, and I think Eric had a lot to do with that. And But I'm not blaming him. If I were in charge, I would have made personnel changes as well, and I'm not sure he would have made it. Real question here for a minute. You know, we're talking about the politics of this. If they are going to divide it into two divisions, and they say that the wrestling is going to be up to Watts and pay-per-view is going to be up to Sharon, maybe they feel like having you instilled as head of TV is not stripping enough power away from Watts. Because if they perceive that you're still in Watts's back pocket, then you guys still run two-thirds of the company. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the... The rationale for those who are the no, naysayers? I think it was politics. I really do. I just that they wanted to, you know, they want as as they best they could. <clears throat> that whole management structure of WCW from the very get go, when Jack Petrick was the head of the division and Jim Hurt, he brought Jim Hurt in from St. Louis, his buddy, you know, uh, there, and, and Hurt's only only connection to wrestling was that he was buddies with Sam Muchnick. So I guess if I was buddies with uh, you know, Buzz Aldrin it makes me a goddamn astronaut. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So, uh, but her, that it started off wrong, and it kept progressively getting worse and more in the hole. And some of the more intelligent decision makers in the Turner front office could see that there's so much unrest and dysfunction, and it was, and and sometimes, much to the chagrin of many of us, our division lived up to the preconceived notions. Of a wrestling company, right? We made ignorant decisions. We sometimes acted impetuously. You know, I've I've been in some of those late night Omni hotel bar scenarios that weren't very good, and got called in a carpet on them too, because they could car they could call me in. Heard good at that time and chew my ass out like my old dad, my old man would do when I was twelve or thirteen to get the chores done, but he couldn't do that. Had that same conversation with Rick Flair, right? So I was the guy. Because I was guilty. I wasn't the only one there drinking and going crazy. But nonetheless, uh, they always had this dysfunction and the disconnects. And the management wasn't very consistent. And uh, so I just think it was a cumulative thing. So when it finally got when they tried Watts, they said, okay, a wrestling guy really isn't going to get it done. we got to have someone that's got some wrestling knowledge. So they got to have a much more bigger scope, bigger uh, vision, big picture vision. And uh, that decision was made to go with Eric. And so, but, and obviously for many years, he did a good job there. Let's circle back to Sharon for a minute because I've always been curious. Do you think she gets instilled as one of these um, department heads or division heads almost as a placeholder for Ole? Like, you know, Ole wanted her to have this gig, and a lot of what we saw come down through her was really just filtering in through 
Oli. Maybe she fit the the look, the corporate structure. If they feel like they've got some PR issues with Bill Watts, well, if we have a female head of a mm-hmm. division who's Might a be. non-wrestling person, maybe Oli's playing politics to get her in you that spot. You never know. It, it, that's, that would be... I don't know that that to be true or not true. This is a damn sure a viable concept. Viable concept. Because I don't know when she started her relationship with him because they kept it a secret for a long time. Sure. Because uh, uh, Oli had plenty of plenty of opportunities to have, to be alone and not be busted because not too many people want to be around him anyway. Mm-hmm. So he, he enjoyed the isolation uh, in that respect. So nobody even suspected it. But she was... Hey, Conrad, she was a bright woman. Uh, she did a lot of things well, but for her to she here's the thing, here's what she really was. She was going to be the she's going to interface between WCW and all the cable companies that were going to air, air, air uh, pay per views. Mm-hmm. That was already a built in scenario because all those cable companies were airing these pay per views. Also carried CNN and sure. Headline News and TBS, and then later on TNT. So. Uh, that that liaison job was kind of in place. You can always build good, better relationships. I think she was basically there to to oversee what the promos looked like, and and the sale, the marketing things that 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 the the, the WCW sent to the cable companies, promos and things of that nature. I think that was really her glorified job: keep track of make all make sure that the cable companies are happy, get them all their supplies and all their needs on time. And you can do the promos. Hence, again, the shark, the little guy that got eaten and all this yeah, other stuff. It's crazy. So um, let's keep going with, with this report here from the Observer because they talk about how Shivani does come across as less offensive than Ross to those who don't like Ross. And there's an <laughs> argument that can be made that he would be better in the number one slot. Uh, here's a direct quote. Ross rubbed some people the wrong way with what many felt was excessive self-promotion on television but it appears his being replaced may have had more to do with upper management unhappiness regarding the similar looks to all the shows. So we've already addressed the show thing, but I've never heard the criticism excessive self-promotion on television. Well, obviously Melcher got that with somebody there. Sure. Somebody there, one of his uh, contacts, or as some people that didn't like Melcher would say, some of his informants. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like it's a big corporate thing here. Uh, I didn't realize that. Uh, I had never heard that. No one from manager said, hey, JR, you need to kind of tone down whatever, right? Right. Nothing. So when I read that, and I read it again here with your information, I was still surprised that that even was a topic. Because one would think that as many TBS people that were listening and then had their, how many, how many passing through the kitchen to add their little seasoning to the soup, that somebody would have said something to me. I, you know, I, Keith Mitchell was always the most honest guy there for me, uh, production-wise. And I promise you, if he had thought that I was self-promoting too much, he would have said something. He sure as hell would have said something to protect me. Sure. Simple. Hey, man, let me give you a little life hack just in time for Mother's Day and Father's Day. I'm talking about PaintYourLife.com. That's the place where you can get a gift that mom or dad will never forget. Real quick, do you remember what you got mom or dad last year for Mother's Day or Father's Day? Well, here's how you give a gift that they'll never forget. You find something that's meaningful, something that's personal. Maybe we're talking about their mom or dad who's no longer here. Maybe it's about a long lost relative. Maybe it's about their favorite pet who's no longer with us. 
Maybe there was always this dream that mom and dad were going to vacation to some exotic tropical island, but they never quite made it there. Well, all of those dreams can become reality at paintyourlife.com. You simply upload those photos. You can even use a photo right out of your phone. They can even help you combine photos to create one unique memory. You'll pick the artist. You'll even pick the medium. Hey, do you want an oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even pick the frame. The whole process is less than five minutes to get started. You can get it in as little as two weeks, but along the way, you work hand in hand to ensure that the artist is nailing it. They're getting exactly what you wanted and you're going to get that reaction you wanted from mom or dad. I'm telling you, this has been a home run for me. I've used it for my mom, for my dad, for my father-in-law, for my cousin, for my wife. It's great for any occasion, but with mother's day and father's day right around the corner, how do we show the people who gave us everything that we really care? I don't think you can beat a meaningful gift like this from paintyourlife.com. And if you're looking to give the best and most meaningful gift you've ever given, paintyourlife.com can hook you up. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text R-O-S-S to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And that never happened. So, therefore, I don't think that it even happened, but maybe that's another one of those excuses. Look, the deal is they, they wanted, WCW wanted a clean slate. I had, I had a little bit of influence there because all those years I was there, I'd made a lot of friends on the upper management, but obviously to make the right friends. And uh, so getting me out of the way probably was not a bad thing. And I, and you know, and I had, I was going through a tough time then too. I probably wasn't the easiest son of a bitch to be around at times. And I certainly wasn't when I got to, when I got taken off the off the air. Right. That's what I don't. That's what I've been working for my entire life to do this. Then all of a sudden, for no specific reason, there wasn't an incident on TV. Something I said, something I did in a you know private time, they embarrassed the company. Nothing. It was my deal was I was perceived again as Watts' boy, right. joined at the hip, and we're gonna get rid of all this Raston shit. And so the big the big so the, both those and the fact that we're both from Oklahoma even further cemented the fact that we had a relationship. But whatever that means. I, I guess it would have been the same thing, Conrad, if it had been me and you, because we're both in the central time zone. Right. <laughs> that's just be kind of the deal here. Well, let's make up something else. Oklahoma, that's it. It's goddamn Oklahoma guys. They think they invented wrestling. They didn't. So what happens is, you know, you come off of TV. Eric Bischoff gets more TV time. I mean, I don't know how that is ever defended. But Meltzer <laughs> would say Ross's decision-making position was eliminated and he was reassigned into becoming a syndicated television salesman, mm-hmm. a position which will entail spending most of his time going around the country making sales calls to local stations to pitch the two syndicated shows. 
and WCW released a revised partial list of announcing assignments starting in March, and Ross's name was listed with Jesse Ventura as the host of Worldwide Wrestling, but I've told this is far from a definite, and if it does materialize, will initially only be a trial run. So this leaves Shivani and Zabisco becoming the hosts of WCW Saturday Night, Shivani and Ventura calling all the clashes and pay-per-views, and Bischoff and Michael Hayes will take over Sunday Main Event Show, and the uh, announcing for WCW Pro Wrestling and Power Hour were yet to be confirmed. But when you... It's so weird to think about, you know, you're so widely regarded now as being the greatest wrestling announcer of all time, and here we have a television company who should get that more than most, and they pull you completely off of that and say, we're going to make you a goddamn TV sales guy. Yeah. <laughs> what what is this? It's, 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 it's another part of the absurdity of WCW. Now, when I say that, well, I thought he said he liked WCW. I did like, I love WCW. Sure. I love the Southern women. I love Atlanta. I love the food. I love doing Falcon football. Man, I had a great life there. Think about my life at that time. Uh, I hadn't met my little Jen yet. I met her there. It's all great, man. So when I say that they're, uh, you know, uh, these decisions are absurd, it doesn't mean they're bad people, but it's just another illustration of a stupid decision making. In my, in my opinion, I know it sounds egocentric coming from me in that regard, but Man, I, I uh, this thing comes down to you, you, you can we can squeeze it, Conrad. We can color it. We can look at it, and we should, and we will look at all these angles. But I truly believe, without sounding like we're making an excuse, I don't believe I got taken off the air because of my work. Sure, I don't think I got taken off the air because of my work ethic or my uh, coming to you know being uh, diligent and all the things that you'd want an employee reliable. Hell, I didn't miss a broadcast. In I don't know how many years. And then some sick, you know, but that's part of the deal. So take me back. You get called into Bill Shell's office. He mm-hmm. tells you you're going to make a change. Is that where he lays on you? Hey, you're off TV, and now you're in TV sales? Yeah. He said, we're making some changes. You know, this is after Eric got the job. So, okay, by this point, they've already named Eric yeah. as executive producer of TV, and then they meet with you. I had a meeting. I had several meetings set with Shaw, several, probably two or three, that got postponed to interview. So we never had the interview prior to Eric being uh, uh, anointed. So you were you were of the impression you were interviewing for that job, and without ever even being given an interview. No, no I, I was I was I was under the impression that I would one of those appointments that I always got postponed was going to be my job interview for the new role. Then, well, Eric, Eric's got the new gig. Wait, okay. Well, I didn't. I didn't. My interview didn't get. I didn't get the interview. Well, then you get to think about it. Well, Jr. They didn't want to interview you. He didn't want to talk to you about the job because he didn't want to waste his time because he had made his decision. And if that's the case, you can usually say that. Hey, look, we don't need to have you do your interview. We found who we wanted. We like what we heard. We like the presentation. So uh, we're not going to go with you on this particular deal. And so that's kind of where we were. So then when I went over there to meet with him, I didn't really know what he had on his mind. So it surprised to me that when I got there, I was I was – my career that I'd worked so long and hard to be good at and that I loved doing was no longer available to me. And a, and a role that I did for Watts, and one of the many roles, was television syndication. And, you know, we built a small little network, which is a lar- larger network, uh, and we had a good product to sell. Helped, that always helps. 
So I had some experience in that area. But again, when PBS wrote my contract, the new contract, I didn't. My lawyer did not write the contract. We did, we only knew we want what terms we wanted, terms uh, uh, and the cash, terms, all that. So I think I signed a three year deal. I think for a couple hundred grand a year, and uh, and I was really shocked. Because I'd never seen a contract that was so specific in job description. Here's what you will be doing. Or here's, you know, here, this is your job, whatever it was. Oh, better word than that, obviously. And that's what it was. You know, you're the lead voice on the, all pay-per-views and clashes. You're, you'll host the, you know, the Saturday night show. All that was in black and white. It was in black and white, yeah. I don't think that's a strange deal because they're boxing themselves in in case they ever want to make a change. But you weren't mad at that. I mean, no. Yeah. It's my dream job. So I got what I got. I got a raise and guaranteed my dream job. I thought I'd do, do you know, three years, make us good money that, you know, when the three years is up and I'd done good work, there'd be maybe some more money at the other end of the other scenario, the journey. Uh, so, you know, hell, I didn't know. So that's when he told me, you know, we're going to change and you're going to go to syndication. And I didn't know what the fuck to say. I didn't really know what to say at all. Uh, he said, and I, he said, I don't understand why you're so hell-bent on this announcing gig. And I'm thinking, how do you think guys like me that are broadcasters or performers, how do we make money? How do we get over, as people say? And so, so what you are talking about getting over on the podcast of Conrad, you really want to get over. No, idiot. If people didn't like me, they wouldn't watch. So you want to get over to where you're not a tune-off or tune-out. Right. right. And some of the ratings we got back in those days would indicate that the announcing was not a tune-off or tune-out. So I, I think that, uh, you know, it just it just got to be, you know, that meeting got to be a little tenuous. It got a little, a little edgy. And I said, you know, he said, when he told me that, he said, look, I don't understand why you're so excited about doing uh, broadcasting or wrestling. He said, as far as I'm concerned, Donald Duck to broadcast wrestling. Wow. Yeah. I'm sitting there. And I just got my balls cut off. And now the the one nut that was still hanging in my sack just got kicked. I'm I'm hurting here. I'm not in a good I'm not feeling good about this deal. I mean that's a very uh socially unaware thing to even say. When you know you're sitting across from a guy yeah. this is his lifelong passion and the job he's had forever. You just told me that my, my lifelong passion is kinda stupid. Yeah. You know, so uh and, and the irony of that was is that, you know, they had the big deal there at that time with Hanna-Barbera, Yogi Bear and all these other. He didn't, he didn't use a, a Hanna-Barbera <laughs> illustration to bust my balls. <laughs> so uh, it, it was, yeah, it was rough. And here's the other thing he said, and I wrote this in my first Slaughter book, I believe. Uh, he said, look, uh, your contract's pretty restrictive for us. No shit, Buckwheat. You wrote it. So I told him, I said, your staff wrote it. Right. My lawyer only read it over. And on the few things, I had two things I really wanted to make sure of. Money and term. And both those boxes were checked. I'm good. Uh, so, but you guys wrote it. I know. Well, we, we sometimes we make a few mistakes in that division. No kidding. And, and I want to say, and whose watch is that under? Sure. When are you going to take any responsibility for your shitty job of managing he was he was there he was very he was there only sporadically. He'd make a drive by because I, we felt like you tease we we live we didn't live in the good house the Turner house we lived in the 
outhouse behind the good house. So you had you, you couldn't see our place where we lived from, from the road. We were stepchildren. And we weren't we weren't wanted in love stepchildren. We were well, I like the, I like this kid's mama, so I'm gonna marry her, but goddamn those kids drive me crazy. We got I gotta get them grown and get out of here. Uh, so that's kind of where we were. He he wasn't proud of that division, in my opinion. I might be wrong. I don't think so. Uh, but he had a great relationship with Ted, and uh, he knew where all the, 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 the skeletons were buried. And he, he was a power broker there. He was like a little mafia uh, godfather type deal. He had a lot of strokes. He started there from the very beginning. So he was loyal to Ted, and, and, right, and good for him. And Ted made him wealthy. And last I heard, he was doing something on one of Ted's ranches. How does the meeting end? You, you get told, hey, you're in. Well, yeah, he said, uh, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, you take a take a sabbatical. You're going to get paid anyway because of that contract. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, Fire, you got to take a. T- let's just do this. Take six weeks off. And uh, when you come back, I, I, I can get you back on the air. I said, how are you going to do that? Eric doesn't want me on the air. He said, Eric works for me. So all of a sudden I knew, well, this son of a bitch, this is, where's this going to lead to? Right. That don't sound good for Eric to me. No, we're already divided. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, people are asking, is Kyler Murray going to be the new one picking a draft? Because Cliff Kingsbury, the new coach of Arizona, wants him. Kingsbury started recruiting Kyler Murray as a 10th grader. Right. We talked about this at breakfast. And so there was no, uh, you know, there's no mystery here. I know what we're, you know what we're going to do. So uh, I said, well, so I took the six weeks off. I went to Jamaica. Let me ask you, when you, you said Eric doesn't want me on TV, so it was made clear in that meeting or prior to that Eric didn't want you on TV? Well, obviously, if your head, the new head of your department gets a gig and you and I get put on waivers from my from my one role to another role, Without anybody in charge or looking at my contract to see that let's don't make let's make sure we're not screwing up here. They didn't look at the contract and they screwed up. So let me ask you though, do you think? Because I've always thought, and I could be wrong, that the decision was made for you to be off TV before Eric got the spot. And you're saying now you think Eric got the spot and then he took you off. I'm saying that I was I I, I don't know this to be factual, so I don't know. I I thought that. I don't know how it could be so coincidental. Sure, the timing, you mean. All those, yes, all those years that I had no issues. All those years where I was considered an asset for the company. All of a sudden, from one day or one little period of time here, a week or so, I become uh, on the, you know, on the, on, the, on the shit list. Something had to have transpired to change the attitude of those decision makers. They didn't wake up one day and say, "Yeah, oh, we're going to do today. I don't know. Let's see. What's that announcer? Let's just get rid of that fat bastard. You know, because, you know, I, I just, I, I think that there was some coincidence there. Now, if Eric had thought that I had too much influence or I had too much loyalty from some of the guys that he's going to be working with and I'm going to be a nuisance or an inconvenience, then I don't blame him for what he did. I never have blamed him really for what he did because it was the best, best thing for me ever. But I think that he wanted to clean his, uh, and he could tell you, you know, I, I think that's kind of where we are. I, he wanted, he wanted, he got rid of a lot of guys. He had to create his own team, Conrad. That's what sure. he had to do. Yeah, well, any of us would do it. 
And so that's, I think that's what he did. So I'm, I'm of the belief. No, I could be wrong here, too. I haven't invested a lot of time in worrying about this shit. Sure. To be frank about it. Uh, but that whole period of time was really, really challenging. I had this great relationship with my wife, Jan. And How long had y'all been dating at this point? Well, in her opinion, too long. Okay. <laughs> so oh, years. Well, a couple of years. Okay. And she had never been married, and I'd been married twice. And I was in the wrestling business. Uh, so all those things are issues to some degree to establish a good marriage. you got to have one hell of a wife. And I found her. But I was too self-centered and too work-oriented, career-oriented, whatever you want to say, workaholic, that I didn't put her number one. And, and, and I demonstrated that by never proposing, never putting that ring on the finger. And so she basically said, you know, as we were staying in that little one-bedroom apartment there in Atlanta, down on Buckhead, in Buckhead, uh, she said, I'm going to go home. So I'm thinking she's going to go home and, you know, get some more clothes or something. I'm going home. So I said, well, why? She said, well, I can't do this anymore. You know, so I she was tired of waiting, tired of waiting, and so uh, me thinking I knew everything about everything and this is some degree. You know, when you come into a, a, a business like TV and you look like I looked and you sound like I sound, you always have doubts because of what the other guys on TV look like and what they sound like, and you don't sound anything like any of them. And then when I started getting those damn Bell's palsy attacks, that just added another log on the fire. So now, okay, so what you're saying to so if somebody don't know you, so okay, here's what we got. We got this Oklahoma guy, the big old round face. He sounds like he's from Oklahoma or somewhere else down south. And the son of a bitch can't smile. We're going to make him our number one TV guy. Sure. They don't happen. Right. So I, the, I always had a little chip on my shoulder, the, you know, that, uneasiness about that. So I felt like, you know, well, she's making a big mistake because I'm a hell of a catch. <laughs> God. So she left. And I just, it, it drove me crazy. And then all that time when she's gone, I started, that's when I started my negotiations with uh, my, my issue with WCW started happening. Watts got booted. I got basically booted out with him. Give me the time frame on you and Jan splitting. We're we're talking February, March. Oh, right? it, it was right. It was right around Christmas time. Okay, so we're fresh. We're oh, yeah, oh, a yeah. month or two in. We are. Okay. And uh, I remember it was before Christmas, and I told this to one of the boys or somebody I was confiding with. And they, of course, the wrestlers' take on that was a good timing, man. Get to buy a Christmas gift. You saved all that money. My gosh. Oh, you know, that kind of stuff. That's a wrestler's way of looking at sure. it. Sure. So, I, so it, was, it broke my heart, and I, I let myself down, and she was the one, and I loved her this very moment we're talking. And uh, so that was all that was going on. And, man, it fucked with my attitude and my mental point of, you know, I I was so looking for a relationship, so wanted to be with a have companionship and share the love with somebody like her unconditionally. And she loved wrestling, and she wasn't a big fan of growing up, but she became a fan because of me. Sure. And Cook, and, you know, I used to kid my buddies, you know, I married a woman, I married a hot Italian that's 
uh, a decade younger and as a former gymnast. <laughs> so I said, well, I got it made. And so anyhow, that was weighing heavily on me. And so then I, I, I got hooked back up with Jen right after I got back to WWE. I got to WWE in 93. So we, she finally got back in touch with me and I got in touch with her, obviously, after trying many times. So when you leave, when you leave Shell's office that day and you're, you got to feel like your fucking world's spinning out of control a little bit. You've lost the woman you love. She's moved away. Now you've lost the best job you ever had in your dream job. Uh, who's your first call to when you when you walk out of his office? Do you call Jan? Do you call Watts? Do you call Shivani? Uh, Jan was gone. She was in the picture. Y'all weren't even talking. Not really. No. Okay. You know, I. You know, then it's a different. It's a different way of communicating, Conrad. You know, sure. we, it wasn't today. We can. Send a text or yeah, whatever. FaceTime or yeah. whatever, right? All these cool things. I, rem- I She kept a bunch of my letters on my WCW stationery that I wrote her. Little notes, little, little one, you know, five by seven yeah. type uh, business stationery. And that was kind of a big way of communicating. Because she's a flight attendant for US Air at that time. So she was gone and nobody had a cell phone. Yeah. So good old U.S. snail mail, man. And uh, so we reconnected. Yeah, but so all that time was, uh, was uh, it was really spinning out of control. It really was. I'll tell you what, I was really lucky. During that time, a little before that thing, maybe, I got a DUI there in Atlanta. I lost my license. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. My Maserati does 185. I lost my license and now I can't drive. That happened when you were split with Jen or while you guys were still together? That happened uh, while we were split. Everything was going to hell. Yeah. I was making bad decisions, Conrad. Making, yeah. I don't, and I'm man enough to tell you I've made bad decisions. Sure. Uh, that's when Paul Heyman became my driver. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't drive for three months. What are you going to do? So, uh, God damn, I just can't imagine just walking out of that meeting now, no driver's license, your girl's gone, <laughs> just lost the job. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned you're going to Jamaica. Is that your first call to a travel agent? Or are, are you conversing about, well, I, man, can you believe this bullshit with Watts? I did call Bill. Bill and I, were, that, that got strained after he left. Our relationship got strained. At this point, he's still there. He's not all the way at you, but it's not going to be but, long. But I'll, I'll rephrase that. Rephrase that. Our relationship was very strained because I saw him self-destructing. And I suspected because no matter who you talk to there, 
It was the old deal where, man, you must be really happy to get your old boss back. You know, your old guy you first played for, your old first coach, blah, 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 type deal. And he put a little happy face. Oh, yeah, it's great. You'll do a great job. And I'm thinking, this is, this is never going to work. Really? Oh, never going to work from day one. But here's the deal. And I think Eric Bischoff wrote this in his book. The one thing you can say about me, a lot of things you can, and, some are, and a lot of them are actually true, is that I'm a loyal bastard. I'm hardworking and I'm loyal. They brought Bill in to be the boss, Conrad. And I am, uh, I was going to be loyal to whoever the boss was, just like I was the herd and Kit Fry, and, and just like I would have been with Eric. Right. But that didn't come to fruition. But that was, the, Bill could never, was never going to be able to succeed having to interface in a corporate environment in a, on, on even footing with other department heads and other people. And you can't always suck the air out of the room. And that's what he did a lot of times. He was just that big, over bigger-sized personality. And I think sometimes he felt like he was still Cowboy Bill Watts, the big 300-pound baby-faced king of Atlanta, like he was back in the day. He was back in Atlanta. He's probably 300-plus, but, you know, those days of being the top baby face were history. Well, and the days of it being, you know, him and him alone making wrestling decisions are history as well. Now they're going to go to a booking committee. I can't believe this is the actual list, but this is what's in the Observer. Isn't it, Conrad, this is going to be good. But is this a, I think we can both agree, this might be another very unique piece of evidence of how stupid the decision-making was in WCW at the time. The sheer, the sheer scope of this booking committee. Oh, it's crazy. The size of, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're used to, you know, famously we've talked about something to wrestle, that a lot of the, the classic golden era stuff that we all enjoyed, or at least I did growing up with, was booked around the pool with Pat, Bruce, and Vince. And, you know, it's three folks. Listen to this one. Bill Watts, Dusty Rhodes, Greg Gagne, Bill Dundee, Jim Barnett, Keith Mitchell, Ole Anderson, Jim Ross, Larry Zbysko, Sharon Sadello, Mike Graham, Eric Bischoff, and Michael Hayes. And Meltzer would joke that they're also going to get Lord Littlebrook, Eddie Gilbert, Cowboy Bradley, Happy, Grumpy, Dopey, Sleepy, <laughs> Sneezy, Dancer, Prancer. I mean, this is yeah. one hell of a list here. And, and it's no surprise, you know, we, we talked about this meeting happening on the 2nd. Fast forward to the 10th of February, and Bill Watts resigns as the Vice President of Wrestling Operations. And we're going to talk a lot about uh, him leaving on another episode, uh, because that is a controversial piece of business that people are still talking about. And Jim alluded to it a little earlier, but you know, I want to focus more on Jim jumping here. When you, when you find out that Bill resigned, uh, do you guys have any sort of conversation, or are you in Jamaica out of there by then? No, no, we talk, no, no, no. I was there. Uh, I was there. Uh, see, I'm remembering. I'm trying to remember the chronological uh, uh, point of view here, Conrad. Bill Bill is out, and he tells me it's his deal. He's he's he resigned. Mm-hmm. He quit. Couldn't do. It. And I can see him. He was very. He was very powerful in delivering that message. I quit. I can't do all these, all these people. There's too many. You know. We wanted to make sure you knew he didn't get fired. Bingo. That was important to him. Alpha male wrestler. Sure. Alpha male wrestler, brother. So, uh, and the other thing about that booking committee, uh, the world's largest, there's some amazingly bright people on that committee. Oh, absolutely. 
But how do you structure an unstructured, undisciplined group of people, by and large, not all of them, uh, I don't know. I, it was just it was ill-fated. It's another one of those great WCW decisions that you, you roll your eyes and say, what the hell were we thinking? Right. Really. So when you find out that the bill's out of there and you're off TV, I mean, do you start making inroads at some point? Like, hey, I got to find another place to land? Or is your attitude, I'm going to ride this out? Or I need to get my shit together and get Jan back? What's your focus? Oh, man. It's lit. And I think I read at least our notes, and I know Eric thought I was very bitter. Eric's probably right, uh, but a lot of it was a lot of the my perceived bitterness, Conrad, was strictly from one source, meaning wrestling. Our whole goddamn life surrounds wrestling, for God's sakes. Right. You can't have a life or another issue or another love or another anything if it's not wrestling oriented. Uh, I used to tell these stories in my live shows about what the business meant to me, and it still does to a large degree, and how so many seminal things in my life, big things in my life, I relate and marry to wrestling. Sure. My dad dies the night the Road Warriors debuted at the Manhattan Center, for example. And so, it just, so I didn't know where to turn in that regard. You know, in a, in a smarter time, maybe today I'd probably get counseling. Sure. I might have sought out the clergy. Instead of that first call I made when I left Bill Shaw's office, was to become defiant and pissed off and call my lawyer. I sure as hell didn't call Cowboy. Uh, you know, uh, and I, I had a great ally in Keith Mitchell, but the more I, ate it, the more I tried to uh, resurrect and that deal in front of the others, it's going to get him in heat. It's just silly. This whole damn thing is silly. So, uh, but I remember Cowboy getting let go. Then my, then the axe followed on me. Later on, after the watch left, they got their house clean. They got their broom out. They got the suite. And then after that's when I went to Jamaica. That's how I remember. <laughs> and you go to Jamaica by yourself. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. It's not a bad place to go by yourself. No, I found some trouble getting into I didn't have any issues. Uh, well, I didn't have a girlfriend. And I was lonely, lonely, lonely. So I had a great time, and I figured out you could, for about a hundred dollars a day, you could have a car twenty-four-seven. A little Jamaica driver and some kind of little Toyota or something that looked like a cab, but it wasn't. He's outside the resort, all-inclusive resort. I never left the resort. And here's the funny part about it: you find out when you get places like that just how big TVS really was. How do you mean? Well, I'm getting uh, that's long before. now. Nowadays. I can go fairly inconspicuously through an airport unless I'm wearing my hat. Yeah, then yeah, then the all bets are off. So down there is that you know people recognize who my face and what and my sound. Uh, you know, bad southern sound I got. I, sure, I, I, it screwed me there too. No, I'm kidding. It didn't screw me, but it got me great service. It got me drinks and it got me introduced to a lot of ladies that were nice. And I had a great time. I, had, I stayed. I was there. I was. I got bored so fast, but that. Then when I came back, that's when we sort of trying to put things back together. And, and then I realized if I'm going to try to establish a legitimate broadcasting career in this world, I can't be here. I'm not wanted here. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter the reason. Tell everybody what else you were doing besides wrestling at that point. Because there was more to your life than just wrestling. 
as far as you know broadcasting goes. Well, I was in the the year that the Georgia Dome opened in '92. I joined uh, Bill Rosinski, who's a big time broadcaster now for ESPN. Does golf, does college football. Great broadcaster, great pipes. He was a play-by-play guy. And I worked with him and Jeff Van Note and the Noter, number 57, uh, who got a 57 Chevy as his retirement gift from the Falcons back in the day, was a former center. He, uh, so the three of us were on the, on the Falcon crew. Time of my life, you know, flew the team, went to all the way game, all the games. You know, first uh, broadcasters to do games in the Georgia Dome, then they liked our work so much that we got assigned to do the uh, Peach Bowl. So I did the Peach Bowl that year and just had a hell of a good time. So uh, friends, I love football. Just love it. You know, like you and me, we're crazy about the game. Sure. Uh, so I had a chance to – can you believe this has been a, a wrestling announcer getting hired by an NFL team? That's big time. That was To me, that was like, you know, God, this is cool, really cool. So I, that's why I say it all – Another, another piece of evidence in my case. I love living in Atlanta. I didn't want to leave, right? But I realized to get my to get where I wanted to to to, to my designation. I needed. I couldn't be in WW. Just WW. I had to leave. But that decision, no matter how coarse it, and some of those proceedings were to get me to that mindset, was the best thing that ever happened to me. Sure. Uh, so that was uh, that's kind of where that was. I. And that's when I started. I called Bruce and and uh, who I'd work. I, I say Bruce's ass a time or two too. I don't know if he'll tell you that, but Cowboy didn't like Bruce either. Right. Cowboy didn't like. Cowboy gave me instructions when we went to the. Uh, it was in Mobile, the Beach Brawl or Beach something. Beach Blast '92. Me and Ventura called that show. I think. Yeah. That was the weekend I was supposed to fire Eric. And uh, I was supposed to fire him before we left, and I told Bill, I said he's not done anything wrong. He's not a big talent. I don't like him. I don't trust him. I said, well, you don't have to work with him. He works with, he, he, he's my guy. So, so what brought this on? Well, we just need to get, get people's attention around here. Bill, that's not a good reason. You can't go to HR and say, you know, uh, I, I fired him or her because I want to get people's attention. But people do that all the time. It's, it's one of those shy, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter moves. Correct. You know, but that, I mean, that's what you do. You, I said, I said, Bill, HR is not going not gonna to go for that. Fuck HR. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, you can if you want to. I'll stay out of that little argument. So on that, when we got to t- down to uh, do the pay-per-view, Eric was there. Bill, what's he doing here? Bill, I didn't fire him. I'm not going to fire him. You want to fire him, you fire him. He's not, it's not the way, it's not right. So fast forward, not even a year. And now the shoe's on the other foot, and you find out that the guy whose job you saved, he's now. He didn't want me. He didn't. I don't think he felt comfortable working with me. Yeah, he wrote in his book. He said, I want to make it clear. We're talking about Derek Bischoff, of course. I didn't like working with Jim Ross at the time. Jim Ross was, I don't want to say a tyrant, but he was a miserable human being. <laughs> a lot of that had to do with the fact that he reported to Bill Watts, and he had to take a lot of Watts' shit. Jim had to support Bill Watts' decisions, whether he agreed with them or not. He had to be his hatchet man. Jim took responsibility for a lot of what Bill Watts chose to do. It was a miserable position to be in. And he would continue, One of the things I respect about Jim Ross is that he's an incredibly hardworking, loyal person. 
If the guy above him says, this is what I want to do, he goes and does it with 150% effort. With respect to Bill Watts, that put Jim in a very difficult position. Bill Shaw moved Jim out of wrestling operations and put him into sales and syndication, and Jim took that as a real kick in the balls. He looked at it like a demotion. He didn't have to take a pay cut, and there were no changes to his contract, but it must have been hard on his pride. And a few days later, I was appointed the new executive producer of WCW program. Jim took an even bigger kick in the balls. Here's Eric Bischoff, a guy who's barely been in the business long enough to have a cup of coffee, a guy who worked for him probably three levels below him, uh, now that I think about it, coming in and giving him orders. So Eric knows he's in a bad spot, but he's sort of passing the buck there to Shaw, saying that it was Shaw's decision. Well, I think Shaw, I think Shaw was, uh, as usual, didn't do a lot of time on WCW. Uh, this, this, I, I always perceive this. My perception of Bill Shaw was the least time that he could spend on WCW, the better he liked it. Uh, I don't think he felt comfortable telling his peers on the on the North Tower, "What'd you do this morning, Bill? At, at having lunch? What'd you do? Oh, I had another wrestling meeting. Right. That's not the cool thing. Sure. So, uh, and I think that Cowboy had serious words with Shaw, maybe even threatening. Uh, if we were in a different position, or we we're outside right now, you wouldn't be saying that type thing. That kind of a deal. Sure, I can see that happening. And I don't. I think uh, you know. Again, do or Shaw put me right there with Cowboy, and and so I was all the time I was there prior to Bill getting there meant nothing apparently. Uh, and then of course Bob Dew was just a figurehead. Bob Dew was a nice guy. Bob Dew's greatest accomplishment is siring Laurie Dew, his daughter, who was a big national news person for years uh Lori do d-h-u-e she's very talented and bob ran the omni which the omni basically ran itself it's only building in town for god's sakes how hard is that to book right but bob liked golf and women not there's anything wrong with either of those two categories but uh he just was a nice looking guy looked great in a suit had the, the silver looking hair you know he's perfect on a team picture for for corporate and he was a buddies of uh, do, and uh, I guess they played golf together, or whatever. But we just we had, the leadership there was horrible. Think about that deal. Think about how lousy the leadership was in WCW for years and years, and the constant continuing of making bad decisions. Yeah, you got the world's largest booking committee. You got we have three divisions. Sheriff Zello's going to be over pay per view. Did that mean when I read Melser's thing, you showed me? It seemed like she was going to be in charge of pay-per-view. Does that mean she's booking the cards? I say it's, she's going to do the promos. But that would not have been enough of a title for a VP, especially a female VP, in that era. Well, let's talk about the Eric Bischoff story here. Because uh, he wrote in his book, Jim Ross, because he was so miserable, contacted Vince. It became obvious to Jim that McMahon would hire him. So Jim called Shaw and asked if Bill would let him out of his contract. And at that point, I did get involved. Bill Shaw came to me and asked, Eric, what should we do? Should we just hold on to him and keep him away from Vince? And I thought, why keep a guy here when he's when we've been surrounded by negativity and bad morale and political infighting? Why would we want to keep a guy here when he's miserable? Let him move on with his life. I think he's inferring that I had my negativity was infectious. Yep. Uh, that I was I was one of the reasons for bad morale, and that I was deeply involved in political infighting. 
of which I take umbrage to all those things. Uh, could they have happened on an isolated basis? Absolutely. Especially at this time in your life. Yes, I want to yeah. give context here. Yeah. We're talking about this conversation probably happening um, in February. Definitely happening in February. So we're two months removed yeah. from your falling out with mm-hmm. Jan. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff going on. I failed, with, I failed that. I failed that. I failed in that relationship, and I and I was pissed at myself, angry at the world because I let this woman slip away, and uh, so I I can see Eric's assessment here uh, of having some, having truth uh, sprinkled in. But was I always bitter? No. Was I always a political this? I don't think so. I, I like to think not. Any more than the wrestling business are automatically always is, Conrad. That's why people love this show. They're going to love it even more because this is a part of the of the, of the back picture that they don't get. And I know how I felt about it because I'm I was still me then. I didn't have a, I didn't have any kind of surgery. So I'm still the same guy I was then. And you know I can we can tell these stories and how I felt, but I'm not going to disagree with Eric's opinion. I I I disagree with his opinion in the such that I don't think he's accurate. But I defend his ability to give his opinion, and partially he's, he's got some there's some validity there. Well, he wasn't done. This book he wrote, <laughs> Jim got himself over by claiming I fired him, and that WCW was being run. I got by myself him. over, by the way, with my fucking work. Yep. My work got me over, and uh, that's what got me over. Russell speak again. He said that you would say WCW was being run by a bunch of unqualified idiots. Uh, Jim would run around and say in his good old boy drawl, "I got fired because of that damn Eric Bischoff." I don't know how Jim reconciled what had been going on under Bill Watts. A group of Cub Scouts could have done a better job running WCW than Bill Watts had done. For criticizing me endeared him to a lot of people. People looked at me as this young kid who had come out of nowhere and was wielding all this power and abusing all these people who had been in the business for so long and had contributed so much and had a legacy in the wrestling business, yada, yada, yada. I was totally disrespecting them. Right. A lot of people got themselves over that way, and Jim Ross was one of the first. Part of it was probably because he was hurting, and maybe he thought in his mind, I was pulling all the strings behind the scenes, but I wasn't. Well, here's the thing. You go to the Bill Shaw meeting. You think Bill Shaw defended Eric? No. Right. He just hired him. He just got him this promotion. And he showed no loyalty to Eric, which told me that this son of a bitch, this division, has got this illness in it, this growth that's going to have to have a major surgery to go away. And guess what? It was inoperable. They went out of business. They lost. Uh, I'd like to know somewhere along the way how much money we lost. Right. Based on how much money the, the Eric had those good years, you know. Sure. A few of those good years. I wonder where they were at the end of the day on that deal. But nonetheless, uh, you know, I, I can – I was hurting. He's right on that point. I was hurting. And I didn't conduct myself, Conrad, as well as I was raised. Mom and Daddy raised a pretty good guy. Thank him for that. But I don't I don't know that I was being the best JR at that time as I could have been. You were probably drinking too much. We addressed the DUI. Mm-hmm. You were probably working too much and maybe I had no life. If I wasn't at work, I wasn't happy. Okay. And, and, and now you're not happy at work either because they've taken away the thing right. you enjoyed. So, so bad, bad formula. Yeah. Well, it's not going to equal success or happiness. So let's talk about the call. Um, how far after this meeting, or you get back from Jamaica, you realize, boy, this shit sucks, and you call your old friend Bruce Pritchard. Uh, this is all still in February '93. Uh, 
what do you pitch, Bruce, and, and how was that received? I said I'm getting ready. I'm probably going to leave here. I can leave here. There's a little, there's some issues, you know, they've made some changes. Uh, my presence is not necessarily wanted in the role I want to be in. I want to be a broadcaster. That's what I've I, I worked all my life to do, Bruce, you know. Much like he wanted to be a performer all his life, quite frankly. Nothing wrong with that. So well, I said, you know how, where I'm coming from with this thing. So uh, I just want, I don't have any man's number. I don't know if you'd be interested. It may not, I don't want to bother him if he's not. But would you let him know that I'm interested in talking to him about work? And he said, yeah. So that's kind of a long conversation. We, Bruce and I talked, you know, we, we would talk sporadically anyway. We've been friends since the Mid-South days, since his days of Paul Bosch and all that good stuff. So I felt like we had a good relationship, good foundation, and at least he was the one person there in WWE at that time that I knew I could get through to sure. and communicate with. So when, when you lay it out there that you're interested and let you know what Vince thinks, how far or how, how long passes before you get a call back? Not long. That few days. So you get the call, and I've, I've read your book. Tell everybody the story of, of how that meeting goes down. The meeting in Augusta? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, I drive from Atlanta where I was living to Augusta, home of the Masters. I used to do this, this bit in my, show, my live shows, Conrad, where I would imitate Jim Nance smoking a joint on Amen Corner. Anyway, that's another story. Uh, so I drove down there to Augusta. They're doing, WWF's doing a TV. WWE's doing a TV, syndicated television taping there. And uh, Vince says, we're going to be down in your area. Why don't you come meet? Let's, let's meet. I want to meet you in person and all this other. I never met him. Wow, okay. And uh, so I, I drove down. I, I remember, it's kind of part of the story. I had this blue two-door Lincoln, uh, Mark 7 or something, some number. You'd had it for years, though, synonymous with you. Yeah, that blue Lincoln. I had a lot. I, well, I, when Watts, when Watts uh, sold the company to, when we sold the company to Crockett, uh, I, I got a little money, and I... I was also getting a divorce, so I didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and I moved to Dallas to go to work for Crockett, and I bought a new Lincoln. Uh, and that same Lincoln went from Mid-South to Crockett to Atlanta. It was a territory car. <laughs> so uh, I drove that down there. It was a part of the story that this is Termaine, too. So I rented Jerry Briscoe, another Okie, sure. and uh, us, uh, us corrupt Okie guys. And uh, naysayers. So we, uh, he, he said, I'll, let me go get Vince for you. He got Vince, which is unusual, TV taping now. Vince is always, that's the days he wore his tennis shoes and those custom-made suits. Yeah. And he was all over the place. He was everywhere, ubiquitous. And, he, and then at the grill position and all this other stuff. But then when we did the voiceovers back in post, he, there wasn't a need for the grill position to be talking to the announcers because they weren't there. So he was everywhere. And uh, so they, he came and met with me. And as we were standing in the back of the arena, everybody, you know, I knew a lot of talent. I got it. I'd been in the business forever. Sure. So we kept getting interrupted. And he kept getting frustrated. So then he said, let's go outside. So we went outside in the back of the building. And we were there between two and three hours. He didn't see any taping. Just talking on the back side of the building. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, I was told later, 
I don't know if it's Bruce, maybe it might have been Bruce or Jerry or somebody, Briscoe, Patterson, I'm not sure, that they, they could never remember Vince being in a TV and not being. Working with the talent. Yeah. He, he just he did nothing, the whole taping, but uh, and that, and during, during the taping, he would talk to me. And I just thought we we're going to say, hey, how you doing? I, you know, sure. I'd like to be able to do something with you. You know, you want to have a meeting someplace? So, you know, we had a meeting right then, right there. And there, so we, uh, I, he said, I can't. We talked about my salary in, in uh, WCW. He said, I can't uh, pay you what they're paying you right now. He said, but I can get fairly close, and I can also give you 50, 50 grand to sign. So I immediately stuck my hand out and said, you got a deal. Because with the 50 grand, if he was so close already, you were there or better. I was, I'm first good. Year. I was good. Yeah. But Conrad, I want to tell you something, honest to God, uh, the 50K – was big. I remember getting that check, and uh, it's, it's funny how you remember certain things. The check was a net for uh, it's for the tax structure then and now. Then in my tax status, fifty grand, I, I netted thirty eight thousand. Now I'd probably net about twenty five. Right. <laughs> tax wise. Sure. So, uh, uh, yeah, he, we shook hands, and he said, "We'll be, we'll be back in touch," and meaning the legal process. I had to get released. And all that stuff. And I was getting rid of it. I had to get, had to get all the documentation, all the paperwork handled. And that's kind of what we did. So, uh, and so I you don't, go in, you ask for your release to Shaw now that you know you've got yeah. a handshake deal with yeah. Vance. I, didn't, I told him I was not interested in being a television syndicator. And that, and that big television, show you how they manage this deal. I'm making 200 k maybe a little more. They're not even paying attention. You, you know how many sales calls I made in, in that syndication deal? How many? One. I went to Tampa to go drink. It was Jerry or somebody. I, I, was, I had no serious, I first class too, by the way. I wasn't going to be a television syndicator. I wasn't going to do none of that shit. I just, there wasn't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm not waving a white flag. I'm not quitting. I'm not going to quit this, this desire to do this job or a job like it. So if McMahon had not even brought in the 50K, the bonus, I still would have signed. I still shook my hand out and said, you got a deal. I wanted to get back in the game. Right. Dusty Rose told me a long time ago, you know, uh, you, you can't, don't let them take your jersey away. Because you take, if you lose your jersey, you're no longer in the game. And he said, guys like me and you need to be in the game. So I want to get back in the game, Conrad. And that's, to do that, as I mentioned earlier, I got to leave. So you go uh, and you lay it out. Hey, I don't, I don't want to be his television syndicator. I want to go. Uh, Bischoff agrees and co-signs. So you're going to be free to go. Was there some sort of con- conversation about them paying out the rest of your contract since they technically were the ones who changed it? Oh, yeah. They're, that's why I always believe. Look, I, I appreciate Eric's uh, a willingness to help me uh, facilitate the release. Okay. And I really do. But I will tell you that the, the uh, Shaw admitted himself that the legal department screwed up on the contract. Sure. And that I had them by the short hairs. You could have just hung out for years. I could have come down and hung out with you for a month, and I'd go hung out with somebody else for a month, and sure. I'm going to get my check every week or every two weeks. And it wasn't a small check for in my world. No, it's great, yeah. So, uh, but they didn't, and they, they had done that. I, I used to tell Shaw, or, 
uh, you know, Shaw. I can't remember the name of the picture they had down there. They, they, I think it. I almost had it on the tip of my tongue. They signed a, uh, might have been Bruce Suter, a relief pitcher for the Braves, and they signed into this long-term, grandiose deal because he was like the reliever of the year type guy. I got you. And of course, what happens to a lot of pitchers? Their arm goes bad. Yeah. And he's guaranteed this money for like years, fifteen more years, you know. And there's a lot of those deals in baseball. Contracts are guaranteed, so my contract got guaranteed, and they got they knew that they'd made a mistake, and so I was kind of I want to use that leverage. You owe me six hundred thousand dollars. I can go mess around, and you can take a lesser job that's just fun because you're making that money anyway. You got money coming in, so uh, I I was hoping that that uh, that potential debt uh, would uh, encourage them to move this thing along and it did and it wasn't because they want to save the money look they had the money for god's sakes i don't think they wanted to wear any more egg on their face because i sure as hell said you know it's great to get that check return every week i don't even work because they showed their law department and their test for management wcw they don't they don't want this that's a true story too you allowed this contract to be written and then signed and we signed it that's the irony of that whole deal is is that uh bill shaw i think signed my contract and then later tried to change it. It was, it was beautiful. So this uh, resignation happens on February 25th. So just about three weeks after, you know, the initial big meeting where everything was shook up. And Meltzer's reporting that you had signed a three-year contract, which he believed to be worth 150 to 200 a year, shortly after Bill Watts was brought aboard as vice president. And now you're out here, and he's not sure if you're going to have some sort of 90-day non-compete but I, I take it based on the fact that they were the ones who were really in breach of contract. Uh, non-compete never came up in that meeting. Huh? Never. Yeah. Never. No, not one word was mentioned because, look, they realized they dropped the ball. They made a they made a uh, over half a million dollar mistake under the terms that they have laid it that they wrote the contract and subsequently put into play. I was not ever holding a gun to their head on that. By saying I want my money, I'll, or even what I should have done, and, my, and now it's a little smarter. I said, "Here's what I'll do: I'll do a settlement with you, and let's work out a settlement so you can save some of that money, and uh, for a settlement in my release, and we're out of here." I'd have got some money, but I didn't get any extra money from Turner. I got paid my regular salary until the end, until I left, and that was it. There was no severance, no, you know, no gold watch, no Atlanta Braves very swag, no nothing. Let's talk about Dennis Brent. Um, Meltzer would write, this was probably close, as close to a mutual disillusionment since both Ross and Dennis Brent, who works on the WCW magazine, magazine and heads up the hotline, were moved out of their offices in the WCW wing of CNN Center over the past two weeks prior to each leaving the company. Uh, Brent resigned Tuesday, shortly after the decision was made, although he apparently felt much pressure from external sources uh, that led to that decision. Friends of his say he felt the new regime wanted those closely aligned with Bill Watts and those aligned with Jim Hurd out of the company, and Bill felt like he fit both bills to an extent. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about Dennis Brown on any of my podcasts. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about Dennis and his decision to resign here? Because he's a lovely guy, and uh, he worked for WWE, too, and his wife, Lynn, was one of my assistants in the talent relations department. I never had a better... Uh, person, I never worked with a better person than Lynn Brent. 
when we got her, uh, she by the way she got a PhD. She's a pretty bright lady. Sure. And uh, Dennis, the, Dennis's only problem was sometimes he cared too much. You know, wrestling became everything, and then they both got jobs in WCW. Uh, and then then they both got jobs in uh, WWE, and then Dennis, uh, fake WWE kind of ran a went awry. Uh, and Lynn stayed there for many, many years. Unfortunately, Dennis has got uh, multiple sclerosis right now, and he's in not, not in a real great way. Uh, got one of the great collections of wrestling memorabilia, a lifelong fan, good good guy, always one of my best friends. Uh, it's just, you know, uh, he ruffles some feathers, just like I have, and we all have in our lifetime. And sometimes it was just misguided uh, being too much of a fan that got the better of him. But a good, good uh, hard worker, you know, did a nice job in the magazine. The hotline made money. And by the way, somebody may wonder, how much money you make on the hotline, JR? Not a goddamn dime. I never made a... No revenue share for you. We've heard for years that um, Mean Gene got a healthy chunk of the revenue from the hotline. Yeah. Not, not the case for JR. Nothing. If he got a dime, he got 10 cents more than me. Okay. Let's talk but about Dennis, my point, wrap up Dennis. Hardworking, good guy. He and Lynn live in Dallas. Uh, I saw a thing online the other day. He's got a baseball signed by all. You'd love to have this in your collection. I would. It's a baseball signed by all the NWA champions that were alive during that era. Wow. And, and Luthez is on the sweet spot. That's cool. Yeah, we had a dinner. That's one of the, one of the good things her did was actually bring back some nostalgia. He brought in a, for a dinner one night uh, the Funks and Kaninsky and Buddy Rogers, Lou. Slam Marie before he was out of there. Was that what it was? Yeah, yeah. It was just awesome. Because I, I got to go to the dinner the night before, and it was just, there's where we all miss the boat. If we had this device here, this recording device, we could just set it on the table. That would have been tremendous. It would have been tremendous, but yeah. it would have been immortal, really. So, But Dennis was a hard worker. Uh, sometimes he cared too much is how to probably end that deal. He just sometimes he cared too much, but never anything malicious. He loved the business, still does. And uh, we all pray for Dennis to get better health and to and, and to be better. But uh, his wife Lynn is she's the of all that my department there in W uh, in WCW and in WWE she was the MVP. She's really really good. And now of course she was out of work like uh, I, I kid her, but she's out of work like an hour. She got to Dallas. She's a the executive assistant to some big home builder, and she's got another great job because she's really good at what she does. Uh, she has that thing, Conrad, people that don't remember what it's called. It's called customer service. Yeah. Let's talk about that meeting again with Vince. You know, your meeting with Vince in uh, Augusta at a TV taping was March 9th, 1993. And you started to tell us about your navy blue two-door Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. So after your meeting with Vince, you, you make your way back over to your car. You're going to be feeling pretty I'm good so happy. yourself. Yeah. Oh, man, Conrad, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy. And uh, as I get out to my... I get out to my car, and uh, <laughs> I'm noticing that's kind of something kind of funny. I'm like parking a hole. <laughs> and I come look and say, "Oh shit, I got a flat." Wait a minute, hold on here. I got two flats, and long story short, all four of my tires have been slashed. So somebody that either me or Watts pissed off at WCW, who might have been at that taping, working for WWE. Decided to play nice rib. 
and they, they cut all my tires. And the problem was, it's not like today where you got a 24 hour Firestone over here. You got this. Sure. I had to, I had to, I had to get the, uh, between a nice uh, guy that worked at the building, who was a fan, and a cop that he knew, local cop in Augusta. They spired me around. They found a little gas station that was open. I bought four mismatched tires on this nice Lincoln. Looked like the Clampets going going to Beverly Hills because we had that black gold, you know. And uh, so I I bought four tires and 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 hobbled back to Atlanta. It kind of took the buzz off. Kind of a buzz kill, to be honest sure. with you. So anyhow, uh, I think I told Bruce. I said, "You never believe what happened when I got back." You know. So I said, "Thanks for the." I said, "Thank you for the meeting and all the setting up events and all that." You never believe what happened, Bruce. I get to my goddamn car. All four of my tires have been slashed. With no, uh, uh, there was no other cars. There are other cars around there because I left before the taping was over. No other, no other, no it was other. Clear, it was you. No, yeah, it's just picked out the old, old, old blue. So we got old blue hall to the to the uh, gas station, and I ended up losing a bunch of money that night. Took the towing bill to buy four new tires. I bought four tires. They weren't new tires. And uh, I told Bruce, and, and he said, man, he called me back and said, man, Vince is pissed. And I said, I thought he was pissed at me for something. And uh, I said, what did I do? He said, you didn't do anything. He's pissed at somebody fucking vandalized your car. Oh, I said, oh, well, hey, it goes to territory, I guess. He said, well, he wants to get us, get us a bill. Get us a bill, and, we'll send, and he, he's going to send you a check. I said, I can't do that, Bruce. You know, that was... It's my deal. Uh, you know, tell me thank you. But it's I have my problem, I'll solve it. So that's kinda of where we left that deal. But I never I never knew who did it. Uh I it's never leaked. It's one of those secrets that the boys have or because you know that whoever did it told somebody. It's too good a rib not to tell somebody on because you gotta brag on yourself. Take a guess. Who do you think? I don't I don't know who see Conrad ninety three, who always at that T V taping that night. I Bam Bam Bigelow, Terry Taylor, Tataka, Hacksaw. Yeah, I just can't see any of those guys doing it. Right. But again. Maybe it was Briscoe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was Vince. <laughs> he said, I said, we can discourage this bastard. See if he's, let's see how easy he is to run off. Oh, I got it. It was that damn Michael Cole. He was hiding in the bushes. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't on anybody's radar yeah. yet. Yeah. He gets blamed for everything else. Well, I was blamed for that well. too. Hey, so let's talk about. Um, something you pitched to Vince because he asked you in that meeting, what do you think we could do here to make people more aware of what we're doing? And you immediately jump to radio and say that nobody in wrestling is using radio properly to market their events. And Mm -hmm. he says, what do you mean? And you have a whole idea in mind. Yeah. I, I was a big, uh, that my, my love of radio goes all the way back to the mid South days when I was, after my first run with cowboy, uh, I got a job working in radio in Tulsa. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. And I saw that the electronic media, radio, you know, was a 
something that wrestling had ever used. So I, I got Mid-South to be one of my sponsors or be a client. And it, we helped their business because we, we, they, they didn't use any advertising. And so uh, I believe the radio was a powerful entity. still do. Hey, look. Look how good Busted Open does. Sure. Sirius XM, Channel 156. Our buddies there, uh, you know, Dave LaGreca and all his, his, his Hall of Fame guys do a hell of a job. So we know that the concept works, but nobody was using it. I was on WSV, the 50,000-watt clear channel station. Which we should mention is the Heritage Sports Station in Atlanta. It's a monster. Yeah. It goes to 37 states at night. And I, mean, I don't think everybody can really grasp how big of a signal that is, but it, it's a monster. Yeah, it is a monster. And and the SEC's done all they can to make they don't they don't give those licenses out anymore. That's right. It's a, it's, a, it's too strong. So uh, I said you're missing part of your your moving audience. You can you can you, you can use buy, buy radio for your demographic for our demographics specifically. And uh, he loved the idea. I said plus you can do. If, you, if we get the right people in place, you could do a syndicated radio network station. It's a content is king. It's always been king. So now you got a, you got a unique show. You got the greatest wrestlers in the world that you can use as guests. So you, you can provide a, a the, the show that people can't get anywhere else. So he liked that idea, and I maybe we're a little bit ahead of our time, but but then, you know, now you look at, at there's there's a lot of local radio stations, but. You know, I mentioned again the busted open on Sirius XM. Who would have thought that a, a national global network, the strength of Sirius XM, would have six hours a day, Monday through Friday, of pro wrestling? And they do. It's good for our business. And uh, so I I was a little bit ahead of that curve, but I, I pitched that idea to him. He liked that idea. He liked to pitch things out of the box. He liked new ideas. He liked someone that could collect their thoughts and here, here's my pitch. And uh, as he and I got to know real quick, he's like cowboy. Vince was, just tell me what time it is, not how to make the goddamn watch. Right. So you start to pitch the radio idea, and allegedly, even at that taping, he agrees or, or offers you the opportunity to start at WrestleMania. Like that's supposed to be your official start date. Yeah. But you have some other plans, and you want to talk about it on this monster radio station. We should mention that. Uh, the Observer says, former WCW lead announcer Jim Ross was backstage at the TV taping on March 9th in Augusta, Georgia, and was introduced around to everyone as if he was going to be joining the company. That's, that's not true. I, I stood in one spot, the back of the building, talent walked by, said hello, uh, and most of those people I already knew. So to be introduced to everybody, like I'm meeting the director. The and the, Yeah, no, that didn't happen. Uh, he would continue, Ross's deal with WCW upon resigning on February 26th called for six-month severance payment on his contract, which is believed to be between 3000 and 3500 per week, and also called for him to not work for any competing wrestling organization until the end of August. And Ross is now hoping to get a release from WCW in which he'd give up his severance pay in exchange for being able to work with Titan. Um, of course, ultimately... We know that's going to happen, but is that piece true that you did have a severance and you ha- you forfeited it to go ahead? And- I'd have to go back and look at the old contract, but there may have been a situation there where, uh, you know, if they decide to get rid of me, that I got paid for six months, tell me get you know stay on my feet till I found something else. I just never remember that severance being a big issue, yay or nay. I wanted it out. They wanted to keep and pay me what they owed me, uh, even though they had plenty of money. It just still didn't look good. They didn't want the after effects of this deal. 
So when you had when you sit down and request the release on the twenty sixth, you know this TV co- taping is coming up in eleven days, and that you're going. But you feel pretty confident about finding a gig with WWF. And even if not, you can go do. You're going to continue to do your Falcons work. Yeah, I was hopeful. Show. Yeah, I was hopeful, Connie, that I was going to be able to get a job and live, continue to live that dream. I wasn't through growing. I wasn't through. I didn't. I hadn't been. I hadn't got to my destination yet. I still traveled, but if I if I get out of the if I get off, off that route, I'm or not travel. Not my destination is never going to be attained. I needed to. I needed to get down the road. Uh, but I don't. I just think that they're they're. I don't think the severance is a big story in this deal, uh, because again. This contract was so blatantly one-sided. Yeah, that they can't fight you wherever you want. Well, they can't fight what they wrote. Yeah. So that's kind of where we were on that deal. So we we were kind of we're in a unique spot now. As, as somebody's saying, well, Jr. trying to make us believe that that five that six hundred K is going to hurt Turner. Of course, it's not going to hurt Turner. I get it. You can, you know again, if you're going to play Bruce Suter ten years after his last pitch, they don't care. Right. They got the money, but I think that they just didn't want the political issues to. Deal be dealt with, and 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 neither did I. We had enough bad feelings, not a lot of too much negativity. Let's just move on. Well, you moved on with a, a major splash on the radio show. Now, I guess we should mention WCW is sponsoring your Wrestling with Jim Ross radio show. Partially, this. they were a sponsor. Yeah, they're they're one of the many advertisers, and you've got a good friend and Bob Hughes, who is in charge of the advertising budget for Georgia Power, which is a monster. Um, and you've got, you know, a lot of relationships with these advertisers. So you decide to make this big splash about you jumping, uh, by having Vince McMahon appear on the show, which is pretty incredible, pretty ballsy. Meltzer would compare it to the time when, you know, Vince McMahon took over Georgia championship wrestling's TV slot back in the day. (laughs) Freddie Miller had to come out and break the bad news. Yeah. (laughs) So you've got. You've got a good idea here. Do you pitch this to Vince, or does Vince pitch it to you? I think it was uh, – he kind of wanted to do it. Uh, I wasn't. I don't know if I was bold enough to say, hey, uh, by the way, why don't you come on a radio show? I might have. Knowing me, I might have, just out of ignorance. I mean, you pitch him on radio. So oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does he circle back around and say, well, what if? Yeah, well, right. Your... Especially going into WrestleMania season. Sure. 37 states. Big splash. 50,000 watts, clear channel station, baby. So uh, – he came on. I can't remember. I thought I had some other guy. I had other WWE guests on too. I think, but Vince was the big one. That's the one everybody you know is hanging on their seats to hear. Can you can you imagine in today's social media how that would have would have been huge? It would have been huge. It would have been huge. Yeah, it might have trended to Connie. Sure, Jr. could have trended for once. <laughs> uh, when he's on your show, he would uh, compare your jumping. From WCW to the WWF, he would say it's the equivalent of John Madden jumping from CBS to NBC. I mean, that's that's a pretty big statement. Yeah, he, he didn't even say it's other John Madden. He just said John Madden, the John Madden. Right. No, it was I. I that was a su- pleasant surprise, to be honest with you. Uh, so also on that show, you've got Vince McMahon, Bobby Heenan, and Shawn Michaels. You're doing a WrestleMania preview show, and. He would even, Meltzer would write, actually, Ross himself didn't make the announcement of his joining the WWF as an announcer. McMahon did. And Ross also announced this coming Sunday on WSB, his radio show would simulcast the last hour of WrestleMania. 
and that he would be a part of, along with an in-studio mystery host from Atlanta. And this news has to get WCW's attention. Yeah, a little. Did, did they know it was coming before they heard it, or yeah. is that the first they heard of it? I remember one call went something like, uh, "My boy, what are you doing?" It's Jeff Barnett. What are you doing? He'll say, well, what do you mean what am I doing, Mr. Barnett? I'm, uh, I have advertisers. They've made a commitment. None of the contracts, the advertising contracts, are in, in WCW's name. I created the show. I produce the show. I host the show. So what's the, what's the, what is so hard to figure out here? Well, it's just, it just makes people unhappy. I said, the money that I'm getting paid makes me very happy. So, uh, you know, he, he was just doing that. He, I'm sure he went to Shaw's that I know. I know him. We're both from Oklahoma. <laughs> we are. Uh, so it, just, it was crazy, crazy times. But I, I, uh, I was, look, I created a show and I wanted it to be successful. We all would. Nobody would do any differently, I don't think. Uh, if you're smart, you wouldn't have. But I wanted ratings. I wanted notoriety for my show on the radio station. And that's one way we earned it. Meltzer would write, WCW had been wanting Ross to announce that Tony Schiavone was taking over the show. WSB will be bringing in a new program director in April. And there is some question as to the future status of the wrestling show in any form upon his arrival. And WCW has already met with the station about taking over the time slot. Uh, but thus far, nothing is definite as to which company will control the show in the long-term future but both are seemingly wanting it, and it appears it will be Ross and the WWF in the short term. I've been expected, or I've been told to expect some major fireworks to come out of this situation. So you've got some people's attention. Um, what did the radio, did the radio station know this was a big coup until afterwards? Or? Oh, yeah, they knew. The general manager was a big fan. Loved my work uh, over the years, and that's why the flagship station of Atlanta Falcon Football was WSB. So my radio show, we found out on there was some kind of little technical thing they got that more people tried to call into my show than any other show on the air all week. And they had some big shows there. Uh, what, what day of the week did your show air? Sunday nights. And the which, Wasteland. Which is historically the death spot. In radio. Yeah, it's the Wasteland. Yeah. Uh, Sunday night at 9 o'clock Eastern. If you're not morning drive or afternoon drive on radio, you're dead. And yeah. the idea that you had such a wildly popular show on a Sunday night yeah. is be, every radio programmer's dream. And before all the podcasts and all that stuff, I'll tell you this interesting little sidebar on that. We mentioned Dennis Brent earlier. I think Dennis Brent has a cassette tape of every radio show that I did. Wow, that's awesome. And I, uh, he and I have brainstormed casually about how to monetize that someplace or get it out there. Uh, because I had a real, you know, caller-driven show and had some interesting guests. Uh, I think, I think one of the interesting things, Hall of Famer Kevin Nash's verbal skills were discovered on my radio show. I'll go ahead and tell Dusty. I said, "Man, this big bastard can talk." Really? Yeah. Man, you can't. You're not going to ever hear it if you, he's been, if he's odds. Right. So uh, but anyway, uh, Dennis has got those shows, and someday we'll figure out what we can handle, can't do with them. Uh, I got an idea. 
Or I'm sure you do. So let's talk about it. Uh, what a way to debut. I mean, of all the places to debut, Wrestle Freaking Mania. Yeah. And how fun is it that your debut is right where we are right now in Las Vegas? And, of course, it's going to be Caesars Palace for StarCast, and that's where you were. When did you first realize or know when you're starting at WrestleMania that you're the lead announcer for WrestleMania? Not until we got to Vegas. Maybe I might have had a hint because here's the deal. Uh, it was going to be Monsoon, the great girl of Monsoon, Bobby Heenan, and Randy Savage. Which is a great crew. Yep, yep, absolutely. And that was going to be WrestleMania 9's broadcast team from ringside. Outdoors, as you said, at Caesars Palace, in, our, in the toga stuff, right? Sure. The, that period costume. But Monsoon was ill. And... Uh, he they he, he came to Vegas, uh, and but he wasn't himself. And so well, Gorilla just basically welcomed everybody to the show at the top of the WrestleMania, and then he pitched it down to me. And so that's kind of like a unofficial passing of the torch on that day. Uh, and I did my little thing, and then we brought out Heenan and riding a camel backwards or something. Sure. And then Savage came out and the sedan. Uh, and so I was nervous as a, as my dad would say, a whore in church. Uh, just, uh, it was, I was awestruck a little bit, Conrad, a little, you know, cause I was, I marked out. I, I couldn't believe where, where I was. I couldn't believe this the last six months of my life have been crazy. And I, the only thing I could say that I didn't screw this up, I just screwed like I did with Jan. Uh, or drinking and driving, stuff that just stupid, stupid mistakes, is I didn't screw this one up. I got here. I'm here now. I'm signed. I felt comfort, and I felt some stability. <laughs> I felt like I'll be here forever. I, I believe that, and I wanted that. But unfortunately, uh, we had, you know, it was what it was, and then, you know, I think 10 months later, I got relieved in my post. So that was rather abrupt as well. But I, I can understand it. Look, I was not the easiest son of a bitch in the world to manage. I'm just going to tell people that. I'm sorry, I don't burst any bubbles. I knew that. I knew that son of a bitch was that way all along. I never did like the bastard. Well, you know, we grow, and we all handle these uh, expectations a little differently. And when you're a fat ass Oklahoma boy, that Southern accent, that Bell's palsy, and all that good stuff, uh, man, you have those chips on your shoulder. Even before the Bell's policy, so I I, uh, I thought, man, I made it. This is the greatest thing in the world. So, and I, it was a hell of a debut. I don't think anybody else ever debuted for Vince at WrestleMania, uh, and that role was a broadcaster. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't think so. So, when do you find out you're uh, you're going to be in a toga? Hey, here's what he did. Uh, he asked me. He said, "I got. I'm going to ask you something." I know you're a serious broadcaster, and I like that. I said, but we're going to, this is kind of a, this here's palace, you know. So I need you to wear a toga. But if you're not comfortable wearing, working in a toga, we'll move your debut to some, you know, the next, you know, King of the Ring or whatever, or one of the syndicated shows. So I thought, are you kidding me? I said, Miss, I don't, I'm fine wearing a toga. I never wore a toga in my life. The funniest part about wearing a toga, being Monsoon and, and Heenan dressed in the same little uh, locker room, 
<laughs> and uh, Heenan begged me to go commando that day, not wearing any underwear under my toga, because he said, I'll tell Vince he'll like it, because that shows you got balls. And the monsoon, who's 6'6", six, six, standing behind Heenan, he's standing there, great massive shadow, but right behind Heenan, shaking his head, no. <laughs> Waving wave his arms. He knew the rib was coming. Absolutely. Yeah. So, nonetheless, not only, notwithstanding the the uh, reinforcement of Monsoon's judgment, my own uh, apprehensions prevented me from going commando and showing my fat ass, my white fat ass in, in Caesar's Palace on pay-per-view. Just what my, would have been a good look. Not the, yeah. not, not the debut you're looking for, I'll tell you that. Well, n- nobody wants to see JR's Beans and Franks in WrestleMania. No, man. <laughs> Hell, JR don't even want to see his Beans and Franks, for God's sake, sometimes. You, you talked about your meeting with Vince when he started giving you notes about what he expects at WrestleMania 9 from you. And he says, according to your book, energy, Vince reminded me. Give me energy out there. What other notes did he give you? Or t- carry me through like some of the production meetings for WrestleMania 9 relative to all the other big wrestling shows you'd been a part of. Well, the wrestling, the, one other thing that's funny about that, when I got to, uh, got here to Vegas for the production meeting, he, it was held on, at Caesars, obviously, in a massive room, and it was packed. I'd never been in a production meeting with that many people, but it had everybody, everybody there. And uh, everybody there, it was a, was a, there was a purpose for it. I get that. So, uh, but I also felt like someone may have mistakenly sent out an email that this new guy's got a contagious disease because I wasn't the most popular son bitch there. The word had already got out that he's taking Monsoon's place. Gordon Monsoon's an institution there. He said he was beloved, and he earned all those things. As nice a man, honorable man as I ever worked with, ever. So I got heat on me from the goddamn get-go because uh, that not for Monsoon, but from everybody. Oh, Monsoon loved me. Yeah. Mon- had me from Monsoon and Heenan and Oakland in the very beginning of my WWE run. Things would have been even a lot more uncomfortable. But he, he those guys broke the ice of a lot of the veterans. And I remember Monsoon telling Lord Alfred Hayes one time, Alfred, give me the cold shoulder because I'm the new guy. I'm from WCW. And they didn't like WCW. And I was the voice of blah, blah, blah. And I remember Monsoon telling Alfred, Alfred, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be, I'm ashamed of you. I'm ashamed to call you my friend. How you're treating this kid. What do he do to you? Nothing. Does he want your job? No. He's a territory guy, just like us. He's been, he's paid his dues, and now he's here. And you're treating like shit. I just don't, I don't, I don't get it, and I don't like it. Well, Monsoon looked in the eyes and said, I don't like it. That's, I meant something. Damn right, did. You didn't want to disappoint him. You weren't, it wasn't he didn't like it. Oh, God, he's going to hurt me. He's going to physically hurt me. It wasn't that. It's like when your parents said I'm disappointed in you. Yeah, that's right. I heard it's worse than the spanking. It does, buddy. You know. It's worse than that trip to the woodshed. Sure. By, by far. So, uh, but that was the whole I felt. Uh, and when I know when, uh, here's how I knew this. Uh, Vince starts meeting. You know, I want to introduce, you know, newest member of our team. I was going to be working WrestleMania on Sunday from ringside. You know, say hello to J- Jim Ross. I wasn't JR then, just Jim Ross. It, if I said I got a smattering of applause, I would probably be overstating it. It wasn't the most popular announcement in the meeting. 
other than we're done. Right. <laughs> Adjourned. Uh, so, but that eased over time, obviously. But it was, again, it was some wrestling politics, you know. The new guys come in and take Gino's spot, Monsoon. No, I'm not. So, talk to me about the, the production meetings. We, we hear that, you know, Vince McMahon has middle-of-the-night conference calls and meetings that go all hours of the day. And WrestleMania is supposedly another level of pressure, not just for the in-ring performers, but for everyone behind the scenes as well. What level of attention to detail and preparation did Vince apply, and how was that different from what you had seen in WCW or Mid-South? Or? The only... Uh, the only time I can compare uh, a production meeting or a television format to the details that Vince did was in my in the booking TV booking meetings with Cowboy when we were doing one hour of television a week. Folks need to understand there's a significant difference in doing one hour of television a week or one show a week, whether it's one hour or two hours, than doing all these multiple shows. At least it seems that way. Sure. Uh, but Vince's uh, attention to detail was, uh, I, you know, again, coming from, from the land of dysfunction and fried pies and Southern bells, uh, there was a, there was a lot of finger pointing and who's responsible for this and so forth and that and, and WCW. So I, I, I think that, uh, McMahon was just so far ahead of everybody in organization and he had a good team around him. Everybody, everybody knew their role. They don't sound like a promo from The Rock, but they all knew their role, and they were all motivated to fulfill that role. So he had the best, the smoothest operation, and still does to this, to this day, of anybody that I've, I've been around. Well, the two other team members that he had with you that day are Randy Savage and Bobby Heenan. You wrote in your book that Randy was challenging to work with right from the get-go. I could uh, hear right away that I was going to earn my money with Macho. It kept me on my toes, and not in a negative way, as soon as the pay-per-view began. I had no idea where exactly he was going in his commentary, so it was hard for me to, at times, direct traffic. He was wound tight at the best of times, but this was WrestleMania, and he didn't seem to like the fact that he had to get used to a new partner, me, live on pay-per-view. I had also heard that Savage historically was not an overly trusting individual, and it was just the nature of his personality, so he committed to his working style of all his own, and I had to follow. Meanwhile, though, Bobby Heenan, you said you didn't realize how great he was until you sat down next to him live, and you said you don't think you ever met anybody who offered more to the wrestling business than Bobby Heenan. Uh, Simply, uh, as a peer, and I use that term loosely because he's just a higher level than I will ever be, uh, you don't understand his genius until you're around him more than just on camera. Uh, he has such a great awareness of the product. Uh, he could create two or three interesting, compelling ways to look at an angle or an issue. I don't think the wrestling business has ever seen before or since someone with the high-level skill sets, and I'm in that in the pearl sense and on purpose, that Bobby had. He was... I think he was the best manager, and a lot, a lot of I love managers. And but Bobby, I don't know if I've ever seen a manager better than Bobby Heenan. He was an amazing heel because he understood he could feed a comeback. He knew how to take an ass with him better than anybody in the world. Uh, he was an outstanding broadcaster. So you get in all these areas of key 
positions in our business, a broadcaster, a wrestler, a manager. He was the best in all those areas. He was a triple threat guy. And so I just was in awe of him because I, I would savage would say something, then I'd bounce the ball back to Bobby, and he had something ready. Right. He was genius. Savage was a very introspective guy. He was unpredictable. And, and the play-by-play guy in a three-man booth, one of our jobs is to be a point guard and to get the ball distributed to your teammates. So you want to put the ball in the hands of Savage, the ball in the hands of Heenan. Uh, it's kind of the goal. And still document the narrative of what you're seeing in front of you. And uh, But Randy was so unpredictable, I didn't know – you really had to listen to him intently. Now, the good thing about that is this. It taught me to listen closer to my partners than to have to go to business for myself because i got to pitch this commercial break. i got to do a live read. i got to billboard this. You know, all these multitasking things you do when you did a two-man booth uh, like I did in TBS for all those years. So – it was a different cha- It was a very different challenge to be th- have three guys out there, and we'd never worked together. I think part of Savage's apprehension that day is he didn't know me. Right. He knew who I was, sure. but you know he didn't know me. He he's got to break in somebody new in his word, his, his view. I'm sure that Vince didn't consult with Bobby with uh, Bobby or with Randy on who's, who you're going to work with today at WrestleMania. By the way, here I am. Uh, they probably knew a day or two ahead of time, like kind of like I did. When I got, I, I found, as I said earlier, I found out when I got here. I think we were here on Thursday. So uh, I just think Randy was uncomfortable in that regard. I always his his mind, his delivery was memorable. Obviously, we all remember what he sounded like. He had good he had good sound bites from time to time, but he was so intent, so intense, that he got frustrated easily. And that was not a comfortable position to be in. You don't want to be sitting next to a guy that just feels like feels like it's going to implode at any moment. You don't want the blood veins on your neck start getting, you know, the, the size of a back, a pack of gum. Might not be a good thing. Let me ask you. There's been lots of rumor and innuendo about WrestleMania Nine, specifically with Hulk Hogan's black eye, mm-hmm. and you know all that's been well documented. You know, by multiple people about what "quote unquote" really happened with the jet ski and the boating accident and all that. Well, why was that such a big secret? Why was that such a big deal? Well, because wrestling fans want to make things more than what it really is. You know, sometimes. Yeah. Were there rumors going around that there was some sort of beef with Hogan and and Randy Savage about? Oh yeah, at yeah. that time. Yeah, the rumor was amongst the boys or whatever. It was. Yeah, it was out there. But you know, look. I had never met Hulk Hogan. Until that day? Yep. How did that go? Because for years, you've been selling against him, essentially. Yeah. Uh, I think he probably was a little leery, but pretty professional. And uh, I know when, Basil, when they hired me, uh, Basil DeVito said that uh, between me and Hogan, Hogan and me, better said, that the 900 number that WWE was going to do would be big time money. And I think it did make a lot of money. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, you hear the rumors. The wrestlers are worse than, this is going to sound really bad, maybe. I don't mean it to. But, you know, what you, the stereotypical old women that like to gossip. The beauty salon. The beauty salon, yeah. The nursing home, where they're, where they're, where they're, wherever they are, uh, they're gathered. Congregating. Yeah, congregated, gathered. 
where the hens are, so to speak. I'm getting pissed off now. Some women. He called all of us hens. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Peggy, lighten up, Francis. Uh, uh, the wrestlers can be worse than the knitting circle. Yeah, this, and I didn't even know those guys. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know who if any of that was even remotely true. That Hogan and Elizabeth had an issue, had something going. Hell, I didn't know. And why would I care? Look, uh, the shit I was going through before I got there, you think I cared about somebody else's relationship? Not a damn bit. I'm sorry. So let's talk about that. When you're back, you're calling WrestleMania. Are you um, you excited to call and tell Mom and Dad you're going to call WrestleMania? Are you talking to Jan? Are you letting her know the good news? I think I left her a message because that's how it, you know, uh, on her, her answering machine. Again, before texting and, and cell phones, or at least the popularity thereof, uh, my parents didn't really care. Uh, my dad was proud of my consciousness, but he wasn't a wrestling fan. He was disappointed I didn't do football. But uh, I remember coming home one time in WCW, and I had a, I had a good year, and I made, you know, made some money. And so I showed him my last check of the year, right, the stub. And he looked at uh, the he looked at this number on there. And he said, "Man, he said, God damn, that's a lot of money." Because you know he got to remember he never made over twenty five, thirty, forty grand a year in his right. li- in his life. And uh, so he named this number, whatever the number was. I said, Dad, that's my withholdings. Here's what I made. God damn. He said, are you selling drugs? I said, Dad, drug salesmen, drug dealers. They don't get a check stub. They, and they don't get a, they don't get a W-2. Yeah. Or 1099, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he liked that as the success aspect. Uh, but she would have been she – she got included in that deal. But all my other friends basically uh, – the word was out there that, you know, I was in Las Vegas and it was going to, you know, something was going to happen. Who were your best friends in the business at that time? Was there anybody you could call and share this? Probably, probably Dennis. Dennis Brent was one, certainly. Uh, that's really a, uh, that's almost a heartbreaking question because when it came down to nut cutting and you need to keep something to yourself. You did, and you didn't tell anybody. And it caused trust. You, know, you can still be friends, but sometimes you don't want to trust them with the combination to your safe. You know, these days when you finish a broadcast, I'm sure you look at your phone and it's riddled with text messages and direct messages. Uh, this is a different era. That didn't really exist. Did you get a lot of attaboy phone calls or voicemails oh, afterwards? I got a lot of, uh, on my home phone, yeah. a lot of voicemails. You heard, you did great, you know, congratulations, glad to hear you, glad you're back on the air, that kind of thing. Uh and people were happy for me because they knew what it meant to me to go back to work. Not that I was out of work, but go back to that job and to go back to that job with the number one company. You know, I, I had a biggest show. Damn right, man. I, I had, I had taken a lot of body shots, uh, during that, that period of time, all this goddamn controversy and all these things going on. And it's worth mentioning though, I mean, that, that decision comes down in early February. So here in 60 days, boy, you've rebounded in a hurry. I'm pretty resilient sometimes. Yeah. And I think that that's how I survived, Conrad, over all these years. Started in 74 when I was 22 years old in the wrestling business. I got an amazing education. Along the way, two failed marriages. Uh, but I didn't do well enough to put two wives through college, two daughters through college. 
bought several cars, a few houses. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a it was a cool. People were so happy, and I was happy too. I was just it was a neat deal, toga or not. You know, people make a big deal. Out. I get two questions about that. One is, did you did you feel insulted by wearing a toga? It's pro wrestling, and, and it was a themed show. Ding, 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 ding. No kidding. Yeah. And uh, did you keep the toga? I well, said, did you? No, it's a rental. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I need to find that rental place for Starcast. <laughs> so, hey, let me ask. Uh, we, we've heard for years that Vince McMahon would be in the announcer's ear producing. Was that the case here, or was somebody no, else in here? Bruce. Okay. I think Bruce produced me in that WrestleMania. And I think that was also, uh, Vince wanted to be more hands-on in a lot of different areas, entrances, finishes, talk, make sure the talents before they go out were, you know, had their marching orders again. Uh, and Bruce produced me. And you could tell when Vince was standing over Bruce's shoulder because Bruce got very, very aggressive. And I could tell. He, he's working me. Then when Vince was not in sight, Bruce is just Bruce. But I think Vince kind of stuck him with a sharp stick to okay, get him, get him, get him, Bruce, sick him, sick him. You know, this is just playing. So I, I, it was a good experience. Now later on, uh, during the you know during the old Monday Night Wars and all that stuff, when when Mr. McMahon was at the gorilla position and not on, in the ring, then it got a little dicey from time to time. That's another story for another time, but. Uh, WrestleMania was pretty smooth, actually. Did you have any conversation with Vince about your WrestleMania 9 performance afterwards? Yeah, he hugged me. He said, I'm sure glad you're on our team. Glad you're here. So I, I hadn't heard that in a long time. But even my, even my, on doing great, do, doing the occasional really good show for Cowboy, never got that. You never got, you never got that. And then and WCW, never got. You, you, I got plenty of attaboys from, TVS executives that were entertained by my work to the point saying, "We can you do baseball? Can you do this? Can you do that?" And I was I was lobbying for a SEC TVS football thing. That's what I really wanted to do. But then the Falcon thing came along and said, "Well, this is even better. I'll just do sure. this. I'll just sure. do this deal." So uh, no, I I, uh, I I had that was just a great glorious day and. After all the bullshit that I had put myself in position to endure, making bad decisions, carrying my feelings on my sleeve, uh, and getting knocked down a few times, you know, at some point in time, Conrad, you either got to fight and say, I'll get my ass up, fuck this. I'm really tired of this shit. Yeah. I'm tired of being unhappy. I'm tired of being negative. I'm tired of all this bullshit. I'm not going to do it anymore. And so even in the last few years, I had I told people this. I said, the best piece of advice I, I have given myself is, do not pack any negative in your carry-on. I love that. Just don't do it, man. Leave it behind as if you have limited space in the, in the carry-on and there's no room for this shit. And that's kind of where I am right now. And this, I didn't get there easily, here easily. But, boy, there's just so much going on in my mind. Look, my, uh, I, my mom and dad are both in bad health. They end up dying in their 90s, both of them, 64 years old, young, I consider it really young, sir. So I dealt with that, you know, heart issues with my mother and so forth. Dad not taking care of himself as he should have. Then the Jan thing, you know, God bless her. She didn't do nothing wrong. It was all on me. And then the, then the job deal. And I felt that, you know, uh, I felt like when Watts went out, the, went out the door, he tossed me the anvil. And I was 
I was, it just took me straight down. Because there's there nothing, I could, I could do nothing, Conrad, to change the perception of who Jim Ross was to a certain group of people in Turner hierarchy. And they could make a very good argument. Well, you know how that Watts was? Oh, yeah, what a, that big piece of shit. I'm glad he's gone. Well, there's another one over there. This is protege. So there you go. So after WrestleMania 9, you, you go back through the curtain, you get your hug from Vince. You know, back in the day after the big show, guys would go celebrate on the town. You're at a different time zone here. There's a lot of daylight left. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we didn't burn any daylight, Pilgrim. <laughs> so what would you do after WrestleMania 9? Went drinking with Heenan. Heenan and I drank with, and when you had the great thing about being a Heenan wingman, everybody wanted to be in that on that uh, party. He's just too funny. Sure, he's going to do something, say something. Enter, he's just entertaining as hell. Even sitting around having a vodka. So Heenan uh, Monsoon didn't hang around long because he was sick. He went to his room. Uh, I think Vince and you know Bruce and those guys. I wasn't in that inner circle. Uh, so they had, to, they had to do TV the next night. I think we went to Phoenix. So um, I got, I'm sure I got hooked up with somebody got a ride. Best uh, I recall or flew over. I'm not sure. I don't remember. After that show, though, you go to the bar with Heenan, have a few cocktails, celebrate your big victory with everybody. <coughs> it's a great success for the company. And then you go up. You're in your hotel room all by yourself. Your quiet time. How do you reconcile these last two months where it was – up and down and all over the place. The split with Chan, the DUI, the yeah. taking off TV. The uh, now the high. My, yeah, the high, and then you look around. You're by yourself. Yeah, that's a lot to wrap your head around. Yeah, the the the, the by yourself part was challenging. I never had any doubts that I could I could broadcast. Uh, you know, I didn't care what the people at WCW said that he, he's do this, do that, whatever. It's irrelevant. I knew they were wrong. But I also, again, give them props for expressing themselves, but they're just wrong uh, in my view. And so at the end of the day, you're still sitting in an empty room. And I can't, you know, like I told Brett Farr one time in Atlanta, he's a rookie there when I was doing Falcon football. I said, you, you know, kid, you can't drink all the Crown Roll in Atlanta. And you're sure as hell trying tonight. And that was kind of my deal. I couldn't drink all the Crown Roll in Vegas. I tried for a little while that night, but then I went to my room, and again, you find the same deal. It's it's a room. It's a nice room, and it's just you. So my thoughts went quickly from, how'd you call this? That was pretty good. We had two title changes, blah, blah, blah. Wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. Wrestle, speak, wrestle, speak. Wrestle, life, wrestle, life. And what's about your life? And I didn't have my woman. I didn't have my, my soulmate. And that was tough. That was tough. Especially so, these big moments. You know, oh, you, yeah. You want to share these big yeah. wins, these big You moments. know, and the irony of that is that over the years, I did a lot of WrestleManias. Sure. And she was right there, every single one of them. She loved it. She loved the inter the interaction with the, the talents and their spouses. She loved walking their quote-unquote red carpet and buying new clothes. You know, her Louis Vuitton stash would increase during that time of the year. Uh, you know, she just was a, the greatest when I got, became an executive at WWE, she was the best quote-unquote coach's wife that there could be. <laughs> she cooked for the talent, do their laundry at our home in Connecticut. I was EVP of the company, and I got talent coming to the house using my washer and dryer because it made them feel comfortable. Sure. They knew they could trust me. 
we've built a relationship different than just the office. The office. I didn't want to just be part of the the old uh, evil office. Right. Well, you certainly made an impression, and, and you've made an impression on our listeners as well. And you've built quite a legacy on your podcast, and we're excited to keep it going here with Grill and Jr. And we asked you guys at home, hey, do you have any questions for Jr.? And man, we've got a ton. Let's rapid fire some, Jim. Um, Efren wants to know, did Randy Savage ask you for advice at any point about doing commentary? Uh, how did that go over? Did anything happen between you, him, and Bobby during the cutaways backstage of note that may be funny or interesting? No, he didn't ask me for any advice. He didn't even say hello. Uh, it was, you know, we got to know each other a little bit better as time went on, but in the very beginning, no. So, no, he didn't ask me for any advice. We didn't even have a production meeting between the three of us. When we went out there and sat down, we had never gone through it. We had never, we had never done a match together back in post-production or in the studio. This was it. So he was, like a lot of us, I think he was very apprehensive. But he didn't ask for any advice. He was, he was a man of his own means and his own island. Here's another question. When you first came to the WWF from WCW, what was the first mistake Vince McMahon chewed you out for? Do you remember? And in your opinion, was it fair? Well, it was, it was fair because he's the boss. And, you know, I'm taking his money, so I'm pretty much going to do what he wants in that respect. Uh, don't remember what it was. Maybe uh, maybe uh, too much, being too too talky. Instead of letting the pitchers speak for themselves. Maybe trying to, forgetting I was doing television, I was back on radio. But it was nothing really heavy, you know, uh, it's funny how people ask these questions. They want to know the, the negatives. The negative. Uh, here's another negative. Uh, Christopher wants to know, was there ever a time Jim questioned whether or not he did the right thing by joining the WWF? No, never. I never, I never had any second, second uh, thoughts at all. I said, I, said in, I said in my own book, I'll probably say in the next book that comes out, uh, that my, my tenure there, my 26 years in WWE, solidified my financial status, my reputation, my global brand, all these things. So to me, it's, it was a real no-brainer at the end of the day. Now then, if you if we were sitting here, Conrad, and the roles had reversed and WCW had won the Monday Night Wars and prevailed and WWE went belly up, I might sing a different song. But that's not what happened. Uh, Craig wants to know, was it a difficult transition from commentating on a more realistic product like Mid-South and WCW to a more cartoony WWF presentation? A little challenging. Yeah, a little challenging. You had to know when to be really serious, and had to, you had to know when to back off a little bit yeah. and and try not to have a phony laugh at the comedy. You know, ha, 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 ha. I remember that laugh from somebody. But, you know. Phony shit, and I, so yeah, it's you had to. It's like going to a league in baseball, and and you're used to throwing heat, right? And you're in a league now that they don't like heat, right? So you got to learn to throw a little breaking ball to stay in the game and keep your jersey. And so that's what I did. I I tried to adapt that. And here's the other thing: when I first got there, the host of Wrestling Challenge was the Brain and Jr. How how hard is that? Right. That's easy. Yeah. Just bouncing the ball, man, and 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 laughing his jokes or or being their absurd comments or whatever you want to say, you know. He he, but it, working with Heenan was like 
Boy, how lucky did I get? Gee, can you imagine the people I've worked with in WWE? Oh, it's unbelievable. Here's another question here from uh, KC. Was there any talent at WCW who tried to get out of their contract to follow you to the WWF? Follow me specifically, no. But quite frankly, I would surmise that most of the talent in WCW would have traded their spot in WCW for a spot in WWE if given the opportunity. Well, I'm not even working there. But I get DMs and text messages and emails every day, multiples, about getting somebody a gig at AEW. And I don't even work there. So I know now that you're there, Same you're getting blown up. Oh, yeah. I imagine, you know, technology was different. But when they know that, hey, our friend Jim is now a part of the evil empire, maybe he can get me in. Right. You had to be confident. Oh, yeah, guys, are don't forget about me down here. Sure. You know, because we had helped facilitate some guys getting uh, moving – from WCW to uh, WWE, Undertaker is a good example. Yeah. You know, I always thought he had everything. He's 6'9", athletic, uh, and uh, tough, durable. Just hadn't had a, the right gimmick. And uh, sometimes when you're, when you're uh, like Ole, didn't like him. I don't know why, but. Uh, How was he at WrestleMania 9 when you see Undertaker again? Good. Yeah, good. He's he was happy. He had a good gig, man. Sure. I, I helped uh, get him on the one of those massive booking committee incarnations. I saw him on uh, Joe Pedicino's Channel sixty nine wrestling show, Wrestling Block. They used to air in Atlanta. They had like eight hours of territory wrestling, different territories and promotions and so forth. I saw him on a world class tape. I think he might have been the Masked Man, the Punisher, or something like that. I'm not sure. But he he uh, what he what he did what got my attention. He reminded me of Don Jardine. And Don Jardine was wrestled as a spoiler. You mean walking the ropes? Yeah. Yeah. But his presence. Sure. Jardine was like 6'6". Six, six, yeah. You know, a real athletic frame. Not a bodybuilder, but a real athletic-looking, sturdy badass. Uh, and so Mark reminded me of him as far as agility and things of that nature. But you can see he had great natural instincts. Uh, so he, he ended up going there. Always said that he'd never draw a dime. Wow. Yeah, never draw a dime. And he was making, I think Mark was making 150 grand a year there at WCW. And his contract was about up. And, you know, I was just trying to help uh, part of my one of my gigs. You know, he didn't care about the contracts. You know, uh, Callaway's contracts, I don't care. He's never going to draw a dime. Let him go. So, you know, he, I, the, the others, others here, including myself, think he's going he's gonna to be a star. Well, there's others here, namely me, that don't give a fuck. Oh, thank okay. you. Have a nice day. Matt wants to know, did JR have any duties besides announcing and after working for McGurk and Watts, was he surprised by Hogan's relationship with Vince? Did McGurk give him any advice about WWF politics? McGurk? I think he means Mike McGurk. No. I Look, the newsletters, Meltzer, we quoted Meltzer a lot here today. Uh, a lot of those guys, none better than Meltzer, had contacts. They had informants. <laughs> sure. They had, you know, behind the scenes. And look, I, I talked to Melcher plenty of times. And, and uh, those, and not automatically those errors. And how that came about was Cowboy again. Cowboy said, I need to talk to this Melcher guy. And I find out the background. He's a newsletter. Okay, I saw them. I didn't subscribe at that time. I had subsequently for years. And Watts is hooked on the Observer. Right. Paul Bosch loved the Observer. And Bill and Paul were trying to get along, and so Bill tapped into Meltzer, got tapped into Cowboys somehow or another, 
And uh, maybe I still think Paul may have facilitated that. I'm not real sure. But uh, I guess the regularity, once you get a good source, and you're in a, look, in a territory like Mid-South, and you had Cowboy as your source, I'd say you've probably gone about as high up as you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, I would think. Right? Yeah. So somewhere along the way, I got the handoff. It wasn't that he didn't like talking to Dave. It was the fact that he didn't have the time to invest in it as much as he did at one at, at a, earlier. So that's how I kind of got the, the deal. Say, and it's funny, the irony of that is uh, Ed Cohen was assigned to talk to Meltzer. The late Ed Cohen had booked all the arenas uh, for WWE forever, and a great guy, as good as there was in this field. Uh, but Vince kind of handed off the Meltzer to Ed Cohen at one time, as I heard the story. So uh, that's kind of where that started, you know, with Cowboy. I'd never... But what all I do, I, well, I was in charge of syndication. I wrote ad copy. I voiced over spots. You would write ad copy for who? For advertisers or just for you guys getting in and out of breaks? No, for advertisers. Uh, uh, the For the buys that I would make in radio, I wrote the spots and voiced them over for Cowboy. And then we sent those out to the radio stations that were bought ads on to run, you know. And that back in the day, you could run a, you, uh, you know, five hundred dollars would buy you a massive schedule in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Oh, of course, it probably still does. You could own that own the market, and then if you work out a deal where I, I had a, uh, I remember one time we did a show. It actually wasn't Lake Charles. We had a uh, fan appreciation night, so we had some seats that we had big, hadn't sold in years, upper level type stuff. We sold them for five bucks, sold them all, and the house really jumped. And I, you know, we didn't get all the, wasn't nothing online. There wasn't no online. Uh, and so Cowboy said, man, we had a great night last night. Thanks to the hell of an idea. Of course, in the late, the night, the fan appreciation, I said, well, we can only do these now once a year. We have to think of another hook, another something. Uh, I said, but the radio's reaching an audience that if they don't hear uh, us talk about it in that one hour television show, you're SOL. Right. So you helped the WWF with some of that as well. Well, I helped them. The idea, the concept of doing a radio network, WWE radio network, uh, was a big thing for me. I didn't write any ad copy for them. Cowboy, I was very uh, much much busier. When we had, I think we had ten or twelve stations when I first went to work there. We had some of one hundred and twenty something, maybe one hundred twenty one, twenty two. So that was just a lot of paperwork, a lot of busy work until we got a syndicator. Uh, so I did a lot of things, but it helped me. I promoted towns. I booked arenas. I did routing. I did I did help do booking. So he let me, Cowboy let me learn a lot of the areas in the business as an outsider, not as a shooter, not as somebody's cousin or whatever. And I always was appreciative of that. And then somebody reminded me of that. They said, well, you know, J.R., you were pretty good. He liked you because you're confident and you're reliable and you're a smart guy. So I knew if I want to stay in the wrestling business, I better figure out something to do with my brain. Because it's not going to be, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to wrestle. Somebody asked the other day on uh, here the other day, did you ever think about being a manager? Hell no. Yeah. Hell no. Are you kidding? No, man. I don't have the skills to do that. So, and I don't get my ass on a regular basis. What did you think of um, Hogan's relationship with Vince? But that's something you probably saw that night, really, for the first time. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, well, you hear all the stories. It's love, hate, you know. I think that was the case even here at WrestleMania 9. I think there was some indecision about, you know, are we, are we back where, can we get back where we were? 
So they seem like they were trying to reconcile in 93. I think there's always that doubt. Can you, on a bad relationship that you're trying to get back together, can we finally connect? I think that's what they're looking to do there. But Bill had the same. I found this out. The Booker's. They fall in love with the guys. They fall in love with their top guy. So JYD and. Thus he fell in love with Magnum TA. Yeah. Rightfully so. Mm-hmm. I'm not knocking this now. Sure. Cowboy had JYD. Vince these days has Roman. There you go. It's nothing new. It's not a sin. It's always been this way. Eddie Graham had Cowboy and then he had Dusty. So that's just how, you know, I think Vince Sr. had Bruno. Right. So it's not nothing, it's nothing wrong. It's just where it's always been. And, but I was, but there, the, the, I was, they were so far above me, Conrad, uh, in, the, in the time zones. Uh, I didn't really, I was kind of had all I could say grace over to do the show with two guys that I've never done it for, with before. And it's only the biggest show in our, in our damn business. Uh, I kind of, so I didn't really get caught up in that. Bruce, Bruce is always a good source of their information because Bruce is on the inside. Sure. <clears throat> and uh, he would tell you, you know, if he had your hair or such and such, you know, whatever. Uh, Craig wants to know, who was the most helpful, friendly, or inviting when you arrived, and who was the most difficult or standoffish? <clears throat> well, I think uh, Monsoon. Was the nicest. Heenan. Because he's my partner. We got to know each other and love each other. And, and we love smoking weed. Uh, made him, it made him, uh, uh, it made him uh, calm down because he got a little high strung. Bobby, some, Bobby was get, would get offended by the bookie. He was an old school guy, you know. He, so now we're having to uh, make sense out of, a, you know, Duke the Dumpster or the Repo Man or whatever. And in the character, not the human being playing the role, right. but the goddamn character. And sometimes you get frustrated. We had a code word for the we smoke pot. I've never told this before. Chocolate cake. It's a, uh, hey, redneck, your wife making that chocolate cake? So I knew what he wanted. Let's go for a ride. I need to calm down and chill. Then come back, we'll do our voiceovers. So we come back and do three challenge shows every three weeks. And, and the day before we were there, it would be Vince and his partner on Superstars, Randy or uh, Piper or whomever. Uh, so that was always funny, too, because when Vince and Piper or Vince and Randy did the VOs, they, had, they bring in catering to TV. And it would be, you know, some pasta, some marinara sauce, salads, real healthy, clean stuff. And the crew would call out and get other food because they didn't want to eat this. <laughs> so when Vince go back in the room, they'd have that food come in so they, they could eat the cheeseburger or whatever they wanted, right? Well, then when me and Heenan, Heenan and I did the voiceovers, the catering was an entirely different deal. We had potato salad. We had, you know, French. We had all kinds of fatty-ass food and, and dessert and chocolate cake. So that was our code word. Chocolate cake was our... Our word and and uh, and that was a but Bobby was great there Connie and uh, and Gene Gene was was so outspoken sometimes in that regard because Gene knew exactly where I was coming from. Look, Gene could Gene would say, "Look, how do you think I feel sometimes being a short ball guy?" Right. We got to fight through this shit, kid. And that's what we do. We've been doing it forever. I said, "Yeah." 
So he'd laugh about it. You know, I, I fought through it during the comb-over era. <laughs> uh, Matthew wants to know, what was the uh, one thing that surprised you the most or the most surprising thing about your jump to the WWF? Did anything surprise you, or did you pretty much have an idea what you were? I was surprised at how hands-on Vince was on everything. And how some people can make that a negative, as they do, is challenged me to comprehend and ascertain. Uh, he was involved in everything. I remember going to a meeting one time, and I had to wait until he got to talk to the artist about T-shirts. And seriously, I followed that meeting. Uh, but his his being hands-on in every area uh, was admirable, I thought. And one of the reasons that he will have those, those – you might get a conference call at 1 in the morning. He doesn't believe in sleeping. You know, he told me many, many times, Chair, God damn it, sleep's our enemy. Sleep is our enemy. So, you know, okay. Anyway, he's he's awake half the damn time. He's thinking of something. He didn't get to be where he is by being average. Right. And why anybody would think he's, well, you know, he's a little bit uh, eccentric. No shit. How'd you figure that out, Dr. Phil? We had an interesting question here from... Um one of our listeners here was can was moving to Connecticut a condition of the job that comes to us from TJ. Yeah. So when you're, when you're meeting with him backstage and he makes this offer, part of the gig at that time is, Oh, by the way, you got to move to Connecticut. Yeah. But it wasn't even, by the way, it's like, not what you view in Connecticut. So, cause you're going to be doing a lot of production work. And, uh, and he said, you know, if you're there, you can grow. Mm-hmm. He's right. Yeah. And look, Again, I'm I'm a uh, I'm solo Jr. So what am I? I don't even have a goddamn cat or dog. Nothing tying you to Atlanta. Nothing tying you to Atlanta. Yeah. Other than my memories and you know my own personal indulgences, so I, I had no problem with it. So I guess what I drove that old blue Lincoln. That Lincoln should I should have put that that something should be in the Hall of Fame. Only where it is. Uh, so the blue Lincoln went with me from Atlanta after new tires, really new tires. All the way to Connecticut, and I had it while I was in Connecticut too, until I couldn't d- deal with the winners, and I bought me a Ford Explorer Eddie Bauer edition. There you go. There you go, baby. Three Count Thursday wants to know what was Jim's biggest misconception about New York prior going to the WWF, and how quickly did he change his mind about it? Because there was rumor and innuendo for years about all oh, that New York territory—they're all on drugs, surrounded oh. by the mob. Oh yeah. And lots of misconceptions about New York. Yeah, uh, there was. Because it's in New York. Sure. If the goddamn if the headquarters had been in Little Rock, maybe it would have been. I don't think it have said or, or Huntsville or Norman. No, no, it's not. That's not exotic enough. Uh, I think the biggest misconception is is that they're not a wrestling company. I know uh, when I first got there, they're a wrestling company. Over the years, and and during some of my tenure there, they've evolved to becoming not just a wrestling company. They're more diverse and as an entertainment entity. But I was all, you know, the, uh, the, how the territory is booked and this is entertainment and it's not resting anymore. Uh, I heard that all those years ago. I didn't see that that way. And I think that was a misconception, quite frankly. I think here's the deal. Here's how you, here's how you look at that. If you're smart, we changed the complexion and the, the personality of the locker room, Conrad, and some of them, and the matches started becoming more physical and real, uh, realistic. Uh, 
you can't tell me that when we brought in Austin, then he had that WrestleMania 13, his match with Brett with Ken Shamrock as a referee, that that was a hard-hitting, old-school, back-to-fundamental wrestling match. But you got to have the players to do that. And I found out that locker room, there's a lot of guys in that locker room that didn't need to be there, that they were, they were phoning it in. They had found their comfort zone, and they weren't looking to go anywhere else and stay right in that one spot. And it was just an unhealthy situation. So sometimes the, the athlete you have dictates the product that you can book. And I think we grew into a, a lot more athletic. You know, hell, look, we're hiring. Lesnar, Cena, Batista, Shelton Benjamin, Randy Orton, Kurt Angle, Edge Christian. But none of those guys I just mentioned, and there's others I forgot, and I apologize, they were athletic bastards. They were, they were jocks. Yeah. And they, they, did, they locked up like a jock. They locked up like a, a real wrestler would lock up, for example. And that's we, but we had to get there. And I think that that's, that's why to disguise some of the inadequacies of that roster, they became outlandish characters. So it took your eye off of what they could do well and what they didn't do well. Their, their character, their persona, their music, their entrance – well, sometimes the highlight of the whole damn match. You know, I don't know how you – it's hard to make a funny character. As a, when you make a, a heel, a serious character, as far as a uh, – I'm not knocking Barry Darso. Barry's a great guy. But if you have a repo man, let's say, for example, that's a heel. He's got the little Lone Ranger mask on. You know who it is. It's hard to make that person that's kind of comedic and makes you chuckle. A villain. Right. It's counterproductive. But it was I think a lot of that stuff was not necessarily Barry, but Barry had his big run in demolition, for example. So I, I, I think that uh, the uh, the roster dictates a lot of what we did and what we could could do or what we couldn't do. And you can't throw the ball if your quarterback can't throw it. Francis wants to know, what would have gotten you to stay with WCW instead of going to the WWF? So let's just pretend what if for a minute. Yeah. What if you go in and you have the meeting, you want to ask for your release. If at that time they say, well, Jim, you know, this was not the direction we were hoping this was going to go. Would you reconsider if we made you the lead announcer on all the shows again? Or at that point, did you already have your mind made up? No, I, I didn't know what I was going to miss at WWE because I'd never been there. The, albeit even not even meeting missing man until that Augusta meeting. Uh, and I guess the only link I had with W, well, JJ was there, I think. I knew JJ was Crockett days and Bruce. And by the way, both of those are honorable guys and they're good friends. I probably would have stayed. You know, I, I, I like my, I had to quit doing Falcon football because I took the WWE job. I, I didn't, that wasn't a, that wasn't a, charge for me i didn't like that but i had to do it because of geography living in connecticut you can't get to practice through the week and you can't do your you know i did the pregame show and i did a coach's show at times the geography just didn't work for me and i wasn't high enough up on the ladder to come in just for game days you know i had to do work prior to that and there was no time to do that and and travel so i lost that uh, that that gig so if i stayed I'm sure I would have stayed with the Falcons and and probably could have expanded my role in WSV. There's a lot of upside to staying there, notwithstanding the fact that I felt that loyalty to Turner. 
I did feel loyalty to Turner. He paid me a lot of money, more than I ever dreamed I'd ever make. And uh, when we moved to Atlanta, he was very good to me as far as housing and all that stuff. You know, I, I know you, we were talking about the Bruce on that story about my appliances. Yeah, there's a famous story from something to wrestle where uh, Bruce, doing his JR impression, told, shared the story that Eric Bischoff was holding your appliances <laughs> hostage. Yeah, that was my turn. Turn, I said. The son of a bitch is holding my goddamn washer and dryer hostage, <laughs> <laughs> and my little mini or my little mini fridge. What a phenomenal story! So I said, "How did that happen?" Well, I moved. They moved from from Dallas, the Crockett office, to Atlanta, and I put me. I, I rented a, a, a one bedroom apartment. Right, it's furnished, and uh, uh, it was so small. I didn't even have a place for washer and dryer. So we had a laundry service in the building. It was nice. So they said, well, don't worry about it. We'll just put your washer and dryer and whatever else I had. I think of that. It might have been a microwave or something. I don't know. We'll put it in storage. We do that. A lot of people got stuff in storage here because they had a big payroll. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, when it comes time to move to, up north, they couldn't find my stuff. And so I concocted a story that it's funny. It sounds better than the real thing. They can't find out where they can't. They've lost the paperwork that they had. They're holding my appliances hostage, and I need, and and I needed a, uh, you know, a, a, an appliance negotiator to come in and intervene. <laughs> God. Well, we were excited that you guys joined in and checked us out on our very first episode of Grill and Jr. I hope everybody is excited for what's next, as I am. As always, check us out on Twitter. I am at Hey Hey It's Conrad. He is at JR's BBQ. And tune in next Thursday morning at 6 a.m. Eastern for another edition of Grilling JR Will Escape. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.